Oh, boom now, huh? <laughs> All right, Brad. Very pro. Very pro. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm going to LA tomorrow. Oh no. What's happening? Big meetings? Um kids have a few days off from school, so we're just flying out to hang with the cousins just to get oh, just hopping out to LA. That's the way we roll, baby. You're getting on Do the you private have... jet. <laughs> yeah, of course. Do you have like a special set of like sunglasses and wristbands you you, you wear just to just to go out to LA? My LA shades. Yeah. What kind of flyer are you? Do you, are you like sweatpants and no, sandals flyer no, or do you keep no, it together? No, no, no way. I, uh, I'm, I think that that's fucking disgusting. <laughs> it is. I know. <laughs> the give up, the surrender culture, I don't, I can't get behind it. I mean, yeah. I think it's funny that like when I was a kid, you know, like a little kid, like, you know, you dressed up to go on a plane. Right. You know, like literally, you dressed in your best clothes. Yeah, people wear suits back yeah, in the day, right? Which, yeah, and I'm I'm not that guy, but like, if I feel like I should look presentable. But do you feel as the head statesman of your family, you have to? Hello, I am speaking for these little people, and I wear a shirt <laughs> with buttons on it. I get it. Yeah, I get it. I, think I, so. I do not like if it's not an overnight flight. And you're fucking coming on with like neck pillows and open-toed shoes and sweats and all that. I'm like, yo, you're going to Florida, motherfucker. Like, read one chapter of a book yeah. and you're there. Yeah. Like, yeah. one drink, one chapter. Like, you don't have to look like, yeah, like a fucking refugee camp yeah. here. Like, you ride in your car more than for longer than what you're taking <laughs> right. this flight for. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty... it's always strange when I see that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I I wear comfortable clothes. I mean, I was especially during the rubber track. Well, yeah, during rubber tracks, I was traveling a lot. So I learned how to like you know, comfy shoes and and pants that look good but they were like they weren't going to bind. You know, and a you know jacket. I had the best flying jacket. That uh-huh. I left on a plane to London and still, it's like one of those things that to this day, I still lament that jacket. It was oh. like, it was like, it was kind of like, I, I'm not, even, I shouldn't even describe it. It was just whatever. It was a cool looking jacket, but you could like kind of just ball it up and use it as a pillow and mm. unball it. It looked great. Oh, I missed that jacket. I th- my whole <laughs> thing is like, I think. When I'm on a plane, I'm not totally comfortable. Like, oh, yeah, you're never comfortable. There's a, a part of me that's like defensive element. At any second, I'm going to have to like do something crazy. I'm here. I'm going to have to <laughs> fucking tackle that guy who goes crazy. I'm going to have to well, assist in a crash landing. Like that's always in my head. And I'm like, I don't want to be like in floppies <laughs> when all these things are going on. You know? Oh, Yeah. No, then, I do think about that, about if I did have to get off the damn plane, I don't want to be in fucking flip-flops. I want to be no. in shoes. And then I kind of have like an OCD thing too, where like I wouldn't wear stuff like that because I don't want any part of my skin to touch the airplane. So yeah. I want shoes, <laughs> yeah, socks, yeah. jeans. I want a hoodie <laughs> with a hood up yep, where yep. like the only entrance to my face is like a nose and mouth. Like. Yeah, that's always how I feel comfortable on airplanes in my own like mini cocoon. You no, know? no, that's very. Yeah, I agree. I, I back that. I back. I'm, that. I don't know if it's OCD a little. I, I do the same thing when I start bus touring. It's kind of a strange trickle down I do because 
you know, I don't know what the who was fucking in there last. It could have been like, you know, the bunk literally could have been like the drum tech from Slayer like two <laughs> days ago, who's just the fucking grossest dude. Like, I don't know. So it kind of takes me a while to get cozy. And like the first two or three days, I sleep in there fully clothed. Right. With like hood up, like nothing touching any of it. Like I'll even cover the pillow. And then usually I'll be like, ah, like I'll just, I'll be like, I got to take off my socks tonight. Like I got to like just get, and then by the end of the tour, I'm, I'm in my underwear. I'm just flopped in there. Like, like it's my own. You're the guy polluting the bunk for the next. Yeah. Guy. By the end. Yeah. Maybe that's why I, I'm so uh, self-conscious is because I'm the polluter on the other side. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a strange like trickle down. I don't understand. So he just walks in like, let's go. I'm like. I stay up the first two nights listening to fucking drivers are hitting rumble strips and shit, you know? Right. I'm like, I don't know this guy. He could be on crystal meth. Oh, yeah. Um, so we're doing it a little unorthodox today. Intro first before mm-hmm. we speak to our guests, which is fun. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure we're going to get a lot of stories about what I was just talking about, you know? Old times in the van, the road, old bands. These guys... We're right in the thick of it, right in the heart of it. I mean, what's cool is, you know, I am a slight generation younger than Josh and Carl. So when I was getting into the hardcore scene, like them and their scene was already like mainstays, you know, like Tresco Records already existed. Josh was doing these like fairly legendary shows at his house. He had a a zine that was um, pretty popular. and. I met Josh because I was doing Elks Lodge shows and I actually booked the first Trustkill package tour, which was Ooh. Harvest Brothers Keeper in Despair, probably in like 1995. And that's how I met him. And then Carl was uh, always with Endeavor, who was like a really awesome local band and ended up putting their records out and touring with them. And that was like my connection to him was through Endeavor. So I was like a little kid and they were like dudes already. So if you notice a certain tenor in this interview, it's because both Josh and Carl still think I'm 15 (laughs) and they treat me as such, Uh, (laughs) which is fine by me. Like they both still see me as like little chubby, hardcore kid. Just going, what's up guys? Like I got a couple CDs for my, for my uh, merch distro, can I fuck one of your bands? Like, you know, I must have been such a pain in the ass. So I'll always give him a Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
pass for that. I ended up having some great times with both of them. And Carl, you know, sang for the band Nora that I roadied with. And we spent uh, an amazing amount of time over the years together. But I really wanted to have him on because the story is so unique in the, in the idea that two kids who were really good friends coming up in the scene, coming from the same area, both like founded sort of seminal hardcore labels that broke some of the bigger and better bands that have come out of the scene in like that 20 year period. Yeah, definitely. And then both subsequently like got huge and signed these deals and it went a different way and they recreated what they do later in life. And, but they've always been friends the whole time. And, and it's kind of this bizarre, unique story. Like, uh, I don't know. You just don't see it very much. Like usually, usually only one person gets out alive, you know, and it's unique (laughs) that, 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 you know, two not only did it, but they did it successfully. And and one of the reasons I wanted to have them on is because I'm like, they must have been competing with each other the whole time, yeah. trying to sign each other's bands while still being friends. And and it's just a yeah, it's such a unique s- circumstance. So let's uh let's get into talking with uh Carl Severson and Josh Grubel. Three, two, one. Oh, we're just diving right in, all right? Yeah. No, this is how we do it on the program, gentlemen. Okay. Well, I like that uh, Chrome says that everyone has had their health checks. (laughs) It does make me feel confident about getting in a virtual room with you two. (laughs) You know, God knows about your health checks. The the new variant. We don't want a virus. Through Chrome. (laughs) Through Chrome. Google. Then that's going to be the next variant is Google Chrome, of course. <laughs> spread, spread via uh, via some uh, overlord masters. Yeah. See, I don't know if anybody else gets it because when the last one came out, Omicron, like the fucking unpronounceable one that just came out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as soon as I saw that, the only thing I thought was Unicron from Transformers. And, uh, <laughs> I just don't know if everybody thought my joke was as good as I thought it was, but like. <laughs> I kept calling it the Unicron variant. My wife was just like, that's not what it's called. And I was like, it's what it's called to me. Look at if, this guy. I got to be honest. If you said it without the Transformers reference, I, w- I would not have gotten it. Yeah, see, I'm a loser. And it was the 30th <laughs> anniversary of that movie recently. And I took my kid to see it. There was like four of us in a theater. It was, you know, mildly. Uh, I mean, it was awesome. But, you know, I was like, oh, okay, cool. I thought it was going to be packed out. Nope. <laughs> have they rebooted Transformers? Is there like a new one for the new kids? Dude, are you serious? <laughs> oh, the movies. I know they made the movies. But did they do like another show? Yeah, there's been multiple shows. Oh, there's been okay. three seasons okay. on fucking Amazon. I mean, gotcha. not Amazon. Gotcha. What's it called? Netflix, whatever. Now, yeah. you would have known this without kids, wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not proud. But yes. <laughs> he, he sure would have. <laughs> so I, uh, I'm so glad to have you two in here. I feel like this is like... Uh, a unique uh, experience where it would be so much harder to get you two to hang out with me than to do this, like at the same time, you know, like, so this is our chance to just catch up, you know, know, it's good. I feel like we actually all live kind of near each other, but uh, we do. I mean, we all went to fucking straight dad town, you know, I mean, it's true. It's true. (laughs) The birds. You got to do it. So I don't know. I mean, I wanted to, um, speaking of, of the burbs and all that, like, you know, I want to I want to dig back into the story because I feel like, you know, 
there's been a lot uh, written about, you know, Ferret, Trustkill, both of you individually. But, you know, one of the fascinating things is the fact that you guys have known each other for what, like 30 plus years at this point, right? It is so, 30 plus. Actually, that's that's terrifying. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm like, wait, I was like, is it really thirty plus? Oh shit, it is. Yeah, it is. Right. <laughs> You'd be like, no, it's not. That's ridiculous. Yeah, You're like, oh, no way. Oh, but yeah, right. yeah, it was. Yes. Yeah. So, so do you like when? When did you meet? Uh, we met in 1990, probably. Uh huh. Um, so 32 years ago in a in a math class, I want to say. Yes. Okay. Math like class. a like trig was it trig. It, w- it was trig and, uh, it was, I, it was funny because we didn't, I didn't stay in the class. We, we met, <laughs> but this was my move in high school. I would right. sign up for all the harder classes. <laughs> right. And I, I would sign up for the harder classes and then I would feel them out for like the first week. <laughs> and I'd be like, Oh shit, I'm going to actually have to work in this one. Too much. And then I would drop out and uh-huh. go to the lower because I figured out early on that like an A, in an easy class was worth as much as like a B or C in a hard class. So sure. I was like, well, fuck trying. Easy. Yeah. So mm-hmm. stay in the aggregate there. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, cause Josh was a year ahead of me, but I was in that class and we met and then, uh, but yeah, I, I didn't stick it out. Cause I was like, Oh, they're going to, you know, they're going to make me try. Okay. And, so, uh, <laughs> so since it's trig, I guess this is, this is by high school already. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 yeah we met in high school. I think I was a junior, you were a sophomore, right? Yeah, I uh, I moved, my, my dad was military, so I kind of lived right. all over. And then uh, he got stationed in Jersey um, in the 90s, and that, that's when I moved up here. And, uh, and yeah, kind yeah, of... First, uh, first day of trig, I'm sitting there, and I look over, and I see this kid with a, I think, did you have a shaved head at the, at the time? I think you may have. No, no, I still and, had it. Oh, you still uh, had hair? Yeah, still had and, uh, <laughs> hair. I lost it yet. <laughs> but you were wearing some hardcore shirt, like chain of strength, or I don't know what yeah, it was. Yeah, I had a chain of strength or a Gorilla Biscuit shirt on. I know when I met Kyle, I was wearing a Gorilla Biscuit shirt, because that's why he <laughs> talked to me. So <laughs> then, I was like, oh, you like them, bro? And I was like, oh, cool. So, like, back then, of course, hardcore kids were, you know, few and far between. Sure. And there was maybe two or three in our whole school, so... To see Carl across the room, I was like, oh, shit, I got to talk to this kid. Yeah, especially like a new kid in school with a, a new hardcore kid. t-shirt. It's like, we, he's one of us. We got to put him into exactly. the fold, right? I mean, yeah. at that point, it was me and Kyle White, Michael right. Wonder, and Aaron Evans. And that was wow, it. Wow, yeah. Uh, Aaron wasn't even there yet because Aaron, Aaron was... Okay, so it was me, yeah, Kyle, yeah, and Mike. Yeah, Aaron was my brother's <laughs> grade, so him and him and oh, Eric, right. Eric were in like seventh grade, seventh or eighth grade by then. Yeah. Right. And what yeah. town was this? This is Eaton Falls or Eaton Town. Yeah, yeah. Falls, same Eaton thing. Town. And Josh, you you grew up there, right? You were there the whole time. Yeah, yeah. So born and raised, still like, here. Out of that crew, since I know I know all the names you just mentioned of of Kyle White, Mike Olin, who was the first? Like who? Who was who was like the the one who opened it up for, well, for me, all of you? Me and Kyle, kind of, our story starts at the same time because <clears throat> both our first hardcore show was Underdog in Belmar in 1987. Whoa! Because yeah. Kyle's older brother took us. Right. Oh yeah. So Kyle's we brother, were like yeah. we were like little fucking kids. I mean, I was you know, 12 or 13, but I also looked like I was probably eight. At the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Never so did well just, with facial hair. 
Yeah, I was the <laughs> smallest kid there, uh, right. but it was, you know, on the shore in Belmar, summer 87. What kind of venue? Like It was like a, like a VFW hall. Nice. Um, and we met up with like the underdog dudes before the show and Robbie like took us to some skate spot. And nice. so like all that shit was blowing my mind as like a 12 or 13 year old kid. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, that was our first show. And what, what like, were you, uh, were you like a sports kid? Were you, what were you, be, <laughs> like, what were you before that, that, that made you like find Carl's something laughing. like that and be like, <laughs> Carl's like, no, he was not a sports kid. <laughs> Dude, keep in no. mind, Josh weighed 85 pounds when he graduated high school. Like, That's not away. an exaggeration. Yeah, right. That's actually true. I was, I was little. So I, where'd yeah, you get I, that mouth with that size? It's I played, remarkable. I played I played soccer and baseball and all that. Um, yeah. And then I actually, I wanted to wrestle. Um, and I went to wrestling camp at Brookdale, I think it was. Uh-huh. And then I got to high school and I was going to wrestle. And the coach was like, yeah, if you were like <laughs> 20 pounds heavier, I could see, but you're going to die. So you wow. can't wrestle. Okay. He's and like, there's I, not even a weight class for you. Yeah, yeah you're literally like, 20 pounds away from the smallest from weight the class. the smallest weight class. <laughs> and we're so old, they didn't let girls do shit yet. So, uh. <laughs> so I didn't wrestle. And then, you know, I was a skateboarder and like a BMXer. Okay. And so that just kind of took over my life. And then sure. hardcore came around and that was it. Yeah. What about you, Carl? Like, what what was the place you came from prior to, to going there? So... We, we bounced around a bunch. Uh, my dad was Air Force, so we were around right. a lot. Uh, I was in I was in Virginia prior to moving up to Jersey, but before that, I had lived everywhere from Hawaii, which I don't remember. That would have been awesome. <laughs> I remember living in Alabama. Wow, not as exciting. Not as cool. Uh, you were in the Philippines. I, I lived in the Philippines for two years, and that wow. was cool because I was like fifth and sixth grade, so I was old enough that like That's I could, yeah, yeah, it, like I could learn something, you know. So sure. like. You know, and I, I lived there when Marcos was it fucking declared martial law and was a dictator. So Whoa. like we're on an American base, but you still saw, you know, like my dad was military and, you know, Marcos was like, oh, I'm going to pop some shit off. And my dad wouldn't come home for like three days. Whoa. And, uh, wow. You know, Do you remember what, what was, what was going on? That's pretty, I never knew about that. That's crazy. What, like, did the family like actually know? Were you like kind of, Worried, I mean, yeah, like yeah, we knew crazy because, was about to go on. Well, we knew to the extent. I mean, I guess I know more now and in, in hindsight right, looking right. back. But yeah, I mean, we knew that you know, like dad would like come in the house and like get a bag, even though he's going to literally be in an office that's like three miles from our house, right? And he would get a bag of clothes because we knew he was just going to be working twenty four hours a day and he wasn't coming back. And uh, crazy, but yeah, we were there. We moved there like right after Marcos declared martial law, which is becoming a dictator, right? Yeah. That dude was a piece of shit. And uh and we were there for just around two years. So we were there for when Aquino when uh you know when she kinda there was the coup and then which I forget the details. I don't know if it was her or her husband. I'm pretty sure her husband got killed over it. And then and then she became like the first actual elected official uh-huh. uh, elected president. crazy. Uh, and that was crazier because more people died during their that election than when Marcos became, you know, oh, like shit. declared military law and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. that's like the worst. So like, yeah. So it was it was cool to live there in that you know I saw something that I'll you know would never had an opportunity to see in your average sure you know 
little white kid from America wouldn't see to like see that sort of stuff firsthand. Do you think uh, in hindsight that like, like some of the early like messaging and like punk and hardcore kind of like rung with you, you literally watched like the fall of a, you know, a a government. Yeah. Like the actual actual reforming of a government like that. Yeah. And watching like a a dictator get ousted and stuff. I mean, I remember because we would go like, you know, we lived on a base and uh, the military base, which is gone now, but like the base literally had a concrete wall around it with like barbed wire and broken glass on top of it and stuff like that. Okay. And the first year we lived there, that was our backyard. Our backyard fence was that wall. Whoa. And, uh, you know, and the wall, you know, in hindsight, if you're going to build a wall around something, like make it higher because dudes would just hop over that shit and steal our bikes all the time and stuff oh, like that. Wait, how high was it? It was probably like eight feet. Like, yeah, yeah. It's e- easily, easily. <laughs> it it wasn't that tricky. Sure, but, sure. Uh, but yeah, you know, we, we watched a lot, but we would go off base. You know, we, we'd go into Manila, Manila and things like that. Cause my, my parents were always like, Oh, we'll go. You know, we want to go. We live here. We want to see sites and stuff right, like that. Yeah. So, so we would do that. Um, wow. but I remember one time we went and it was kind of during the whole start of Aquino coming into power. And we, we ended up in a, and I, I actually have a vivid memory of this. Because we were in uh, our parents, uh, I think it was like a Datsun. Actually, I know for a fact it was a Datsun, 1981 Datsun station wagon because it ended up becoming my first car later on. Nice. <laughs> and uh, But I remember like me and my brother were like in the back because it was station wagon. We were in the backpack because we wanted to look out. And, uh, and we like drove like by through slash a protest. I still remember what the Aquino sign was that people were holding up with their fingers and all that sort of stuff. And it was, uh, you know, that sort of thing was cool to see, yeah. you know, and like, and honestly, they, they ousted a dictator and, you know, like it was, uh, you know, I was, I was young, so I don't know all the details of it, but at the time it was, you know, I knew some days I was like, oh, I was never as scared as I guess I could have been because yeah, yeah. You know, my mom was like, no, no, shit's cool. And I was like, okay, <laughs> right. They kind of. You know? They kind of sometimes. <laughs> they gave it like a soft blanket. What was actually happening? Yeah, that's wild. But yeah, then I, uh, you know, I was in Virginia after that, and when I, I first found out about like you know like punk and hardcore when I was in Virginia, I actually, uh, oddly enough, through sports, which is seven seconds, would be bummed on. But uh, <laughs> I got into playing lacrosse, and uh-huh. uh, my school back then didn't have like an actual lacrosse team, so I play in like you know like a pickup league, and uh, randomly. And it was like all ages. Like I was in ninth grade and we were playing with like seniors. So like okay. dudes were just murdering me. But, uh, <laughs> there was a handful of these dudes that were like hardcore kids that would like from Virginia and they would like go into DC all the time. They go yeah. to the 930 club and stuff like that for shows. And, uh, but I thought it was cool and they gave me a couple tapes. That's like first time I th- heard like minor threat and, you know, some agnostic front and some older punk stuff. Nice. And, uh, and I was kind of a, you know, I was a little skater kid before that. So I had been hearing you know, like subhumans and ill repute and the more punk side of stuff sure. leading into that. But then these guys are like, like minor threat and, you know, a gorilla biscuits tape. And then, and at one point, you know, I snuck out for my parents and cause a couple of the older guys, they were going into DC and they were going to go to, uh, fuck, I forget the name of the store. There was some famous store in DC that had like, you know, you could actually go buy Revelation t-shirts and shit like that. Oh, and okay. had, had vinyl and stuff like that. Right. And we went in there and, you know, like I, I brought like, that's the Gorilla Biscuit shirt that I was wearing when I met, you know. It just Josh takes one Kyle. shirt, right? Like just when yeah. you, when you, uh, when you, uh, it's like putting like, it's like raising a flag. 
when you yeah. buy like your first hardcore punk shirt, you know that there's those other like skate punk kids around and you're like, all right, like. That was, that was the coolest thing about when, when Josh and I grew up. I mean, those guys walk, I mean, first off, my life prior to moving to Jersey, like, you know, we moved all the time. I was pretty goofy looking, freckles, <laughs> not the best hair, you know, like, and, uh, I spent a lot of time getting, you know, picked on and, uh, you know, like, you know, my life was like an after school special, you know. And, like, uh, like kid, moved, kid in the South. I mean, I can't help, but because it's in the South, imagine like, the kids throwing oh, yeah, rocks at stuff. Forrest Gump, you know? I just imagine yeah, yeah. the kids throwing rocks at Forrest. <laughs> yeah, see, that's how, yeah. You know, you're uh, tall, yeah, it seems. It, it, yeah, it was, it was rough. Um, but in Jersey, it was such a weird thing because, like, that first day, I was like, wait, I just made friends. So I was like, I haven't had friends. Right. You know, I'm like, my brother's close to my age, so, like, I had a friend to the extent that he right. liked me, you know? And uh <laughs> You've met that, him, so that, who knows that, if he likes me? Yeah, that stopped a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, is Eric actually likes you or not? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I guess yeah, I'm not it, sure about myself either. Kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. But yeah, no. When we, uh, you know, when I when I got in Jersey and I met Josh and Kyle and Mike Olander, and uh, we kind of like, you know, like they, you know, I kind of rolled into that crew, and it was, yeah, it was funny because it was like we, you know, it was like a handful of hardcore kids. Our friend Lou was there. Um, and, uh, but it was also like, there was a couple hippies at the school and, you know, so it was basically everybody that was like slightly weird or like, you know, didn't play sports or that sort of right. thing. Like it was our little group. So it wasn't like just a bunch of hardcore kids now or something like that. It was like our whole, it was like a whole mix of a bunch of like different people, but we all, you know, we had, you know, a friend that was like way, way into Nine Inch Nails and we're like, yeah, this shit's lame. But, uh, I mean, <laughs> right. who knew they were awesome, but, uh, but we were all friends. Right, and, right. Uh, you know, so, but it, it was cool because that, that was a huge step for me. It was yeah. pretty significant in my life because yeah, things you found just the crew. changed a lot. Yeah. And I mean, and it's sort of what's cool about it, you know, in hindsight is like, if you told someone from the outside who's just a huge hardcore fan that like you two and Mike, you know, like went to high school together and were part of the same crew, they'd be like, what? Same school? That's like, it's like one of those weird uh, clusters of, you know, people who went and did like, you know, kind of crazy things in this scene, like being together. Who that's was, true. It's kind of like it was our version of like all those dudes out in Orange County that grew up together. Kind of, like, yeah. You know, I mean, they're, I, they're all a little younger than us, like not that much, but a, a little, but it's like, you know, there was that whole group of people out in Orange County that all grew up together and ended up doing, you know, seminal bands and sure. you know, all that sort of shit. Like we, we had our group and it was, it was considerably smaller, but, uh, but I mean, it, uh, in hindsight, you know, very influential. Yeah. It was, it was, John, John Hiltz. What did he call us? The baggy pants crew? <laughs> no, no, it was the Eaton Town Silly Pants Crew. Oh, yeah. That's what he called Silly Pants Crew. Yeah, that well, was yeah, because that was derogatory too. By it's the way. nice to hear John Hiltz was John Hiltz back in the early. Oh 90s. yeah, he was. The, yeah, because we were like the only nice. like. I mean, we would show up with our like you know our straight edge beaded necklaces. And, yeah, right. You know, big baggy. You know, because we were this weird mix of like skaters and straight edge yeah, kids yeah. and that sort of stuff, and like you know sweater pants. Uh, our sweater vests and baggy oh, yeah. pants and stuff like that. And you we, but we would always go to the punk shows. sweater vests when I met you. I even found it suspect at my age. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> but, we all have our issues. Dude, it looked good, man. I'm just saying it, it worked at the time. We oh, all, yeah. you know. <laughs> oh, trust me. I mean, you saw me in those days. I was the worst. Um, so who was the first to like be proactive? Like, um, 
like getting into the shows. Like Josh, when did you start doing shows in the basement and or doing the zine? Was that all still in high school? I feel like when Josh went to college is when that's everybody was like, whoa. That's kind of when it started. Yeah. I mean, I didn't do anything in high school. Um, okay. I mean, I did. I, I went to shows and that was it. Right. But um, I think maybe I started taking photos of bands. That could be. I don't know. But uh, okay. that probably didn't start until college either. But yeah, I mean, I went to Syracuse and in 1992. Um, and I started a zine with some friends shortly thereafter that I met up there. And then a year later, I started a fanzine called Trust Kill. And I mm-hmm. believe that's right around the time that, Carl, you started a fanzine called Ferret. Yeah, well, you started uh-huh. Peel Me a Grape. Oh, yeah. Well, that was the one beforehand. That was the one. And then yeah. you started Trust Kill. And I still remember, like, you came home from college and we were, like, chilling in your room. And I remember I thought this was the coolest thing. I <laughs> fully remember this. Like, we were coming like, over to... Whoa, you did a zine. Yeah, like, well, it wasn't even that. Like, but you were already doing the zine. And, you know, by then we were all... I was a senior in high school. You were home from college. And we were like, you know, it's the summer. So we're just going to go to shows. And that's when we were going to Kyle's uh, stepdad's uh, oh, the beach, beach house. house. Point Pleasant, which was amazing. Yeah. But I remember I, we walked into your room and you had like 22 voicemails on your answering machine in your room. And I was like, holy shit, that is so cool. Wait, Dude's bro, he's got 22 voicemails. Man, yeah. if I get 22 voicemails, I'm throwing my phone in the trash and killing myself. Wait, who were they, like, who were they from? That was back when you did the zine and it was people oh. like, yo, review this record. Oh, or, right. You know, right, I'm going right. Yeah, but like I sent you a demo and I was like, wait, he gets mail and voicemails? Like, this dude's so important. And I just remember thinking like, that's so crazy. That's funny. Um, yeah, and yeah, then so- later on in my life, I hated all those things. <laughs> Actually, so it was that summer that I came back after my freshman year of college that I did um, the first shows in the basement of my parents' house. Okay, yeah. Um, and that was actually only because John Hiltz called me and was like, hey, there's these bands on tour from California and they need a show and I can't do it. Can you? Wow. He was probably like, there's these bands on tour from California and I hate them. Well, that, no, that's, <laughs> that's actually, uh, that, that could be true. So what, um, what was, it was, what, yeah, it was Mean band? Season and Unbroken. Oh, I don't okay. think I don't think he really like knew either band, which is yeah, fine. Yeah. But he was like, dude, I can't do the show. Can you? And I'm like, all right. So like I just asked my parents and they were like, Yeah, sure. The basement is a piece of shit anyway. Who cares? Wow. And you um, hadn't done shows at all. Like it was just random that John nah, hit you up I, about that. I hadn't done anything. I I, I think uh-huh. maybe we had talked about okay. at his house, like I would like to do a show. That that could be. Um, sure. But yeah, he called me and I was like, well, how do I do a show? And he's like, well, I'll just come down and I'll bring a PA and you'll right. give me 50 bucks and that'll be the show. And I'm like, all and right. And Josh's like, what's a PA? Yeah. <laughs> um, That's crazy. So it was unbroken and mean season. And I and imagine like some, probably some fucking people showed up at your house yeah, for that and I, show. I yeah. added Still Life. I don't remember how I knew wow. about Still Life, but they yeah. were on tour and needed a show. They were so good. They were so were good. So from good. Southern Dude, seriously, California. how would they find you? Like, think about back then, because kids won't get this now. Like, oh, dude, was, I, 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 there was no, I, I we barely had computers. <laughs> I got stories about that. Oh, wait, so, so I, I added Iconoclast too. Nice. 
Um, so well, was, we hung out with those dudes yeah, all the those time. Were those boys. guys were great. So it was Iconoclast, Still Life, Unbroken Mean Season. That was the first show. Crazy. But yeah, uh, Carl, it's funny you mentioned that because um, there was one show I had where Snapcase, Snapcase, I, I, I don't know if I knew them by this point, but they were like, oh, there's a show at Josh Grabell's house, but we don't know how to get a hold of him or where he lives. So they were on tour, <laughs> and I could drive around. Yeah, the story goes that I was literally like having a show that night, and they stopped at some gas station in the area and asked if they asked if they knew Josh Grabell, and someone did. Whoa! At the and gas they, station, and they at the gas station, and they told him how to get to my house, and Snapcase just fucking showed up. No way. <laughs> Oh, I love that. So, yeah, yeah, it's true, though. But back in those days, you just had to get to the town. I don't know how we did anything in the 90s. Yeah. Do you remember there was like, because we were like all like vegan and stuff. And uh, we'd go to Taco Bell and there was the one little like oh, younger vegan. kid. Oh, yeah. 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 He was like, y'all vegan? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, Josh, didn't your flyers have directions to Taco Bell on them, if course, I recall? Cause, cause, yeah. No, because I got sick of a- answering everybody. Because everyone right. would be like, yo, where can we get food? Where's Taco Bell? And, and there was like, well, only fuck, like I'm three gonna, Taco Bells in New Jersey. I'm going to put it on the flyer. Yeah, back then there really wasn't many. Oh, back then we would literally like, what do you guys want to do today? It's like, I ah, will skate, but let's drive a half hour to Taco Bell yeah. first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was like a thing. <laughs> so, it, it, so it went off from there. And, uh, and so at what point, I feel like the first time I heard of you, Josh, was when you did the fake interview with Hare Krishna. Yeah, that that got around. Is that like uh, <laughs> how, how? I deep- mean, for what it's worth, just just for what it's worth, the show that we were at, yeah, were was that in Princeton, Josh? Are you talking talk about the one hundred eight show? Yeah, the one hundred eight <laughs> show that you ended up you did the interview afterwards. Oh no, no, I guess you did the interview beforehand, but we were at the show watching them, and you and I were both and. I mean, for whatever, it didn't matter for me, but for Josh, it was funny because we were literally like crawling on people's heads singing along, but Josh oh, yeah. was. Dude, I was like, that's a fucking then, great song that he wrote about wanting to kill me. I'm going to sing along <laughs> to it. Yes, that's right. That's what it was. Yeah, we were both like crawling up, singing along to the song yeah. about how much I he thought it was you. awesome. I'm like, ah, you fucking hate me. It's cool. I'm going to sing Wait, along was, to it. was Deathbed about you or something? Uh, that song, Scandal. Wow, that's about the song it, where he goes, and I want to tear you to fucking pieces. Yes, that's Whoa, the one. Yeah. Rob that's Fish wrote song. that for you. Yeah. yeah. So wait, so to, give me the background on that because here's the funny thing about you, Josh, is you've always you both. I don't know all of you guys. You're you've always been a rabble rouser. Yeah. You know, you like like stirred up shit. Like yeah, just, you know, funny I up like, shit. You know, yeah. I'm friends with you guys. I always liked this, but like um, you just like, didn't want to be on the other side. Right. So, so why at the time did you like pick like the Krishna scene to go after? Like, what about it was like bumming you out? I mean, you 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 got to think about the the Krishna scene at that point. I mean, I mean, Josh, I don't want to speak for you, but I know it. Like, (laughs) like, like Shelter was one of our favorite bands. Yeah. (laughs) Shelter was one of our favorite bands. I mean, we would just like sit in our rooms and we we knew every word to, you know, every song and all Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. But like at the same time, you know, and, and Josh even more so than me, you know, like none of us were huge fans of religion. But if you, if you look at, especially back that era of hardcore, like, you know, Krishna was like, you know, we would go to shows and there was always Krishna dudes there and they were always yep. handing stuff out and talking to people and things like that. So it was kind of always that one, 
you know, in particular was a little more in your face. Yeah. You know? So I, right, I did right. that interview. I remember doing that. Um, and just thinking it was, it was funny. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, looking back on it, it was pretty offensive. Uh, if you were a Hari Krishna. And so the zine came out. Uh, you know, a lot of people thought it was hilarious. A lot of people were offended, whatever. Um, and then like that summer where I'm having shows at the house and there was, um, it was shift and endpoint and falling forward. God, that, yeah, I remember. And maybe like all your shows were good. Yeah, they were all epic. Yeah. There was like one or two other bands. So, and everyone from Equal Vision drove down from Albany to come to my house to see this show. But also, apparently, Steve Reddy was, like, real pissed at me. Yeah. So, <laughs> Carl, you remember this shit. So, like, in the middle of the show, I don't know when it was, Steve comes over and he's, like, he's real irate and, like, red and fuming. And he's like, why the fuck would you do that? And I was like, dude, I just thought it was funny. I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> and, like, he, like, jacked me up against the wall and was like, if you ever do that shit ever again, I'm going to fucking kill you. And I was like, whoa. whoa oh, dude. really? He got like physical with you? Oh, yeah, yeah. But I was like, Damn. dude, this is, I'm in my house surrounded by all my <laughs> friends. Like, what What are you going to do, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, immediately he would have kicked my ass for stepping up and helping you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And I mean, you know, back then I was this little skinny, vegan, straight edge kid, weighed 90 pounds. And Steve was like kind of big and scary and like 10 right. years older than me. Um, so that was crazy, but you know, years later we squashed the beef and became friends and, you know, been in business ever since. Did you, uh, did you have to like, be like, yo, my fault. I shouldn't have interviewed Krishna. Did you ever like eat crow about it? That that was never my style. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I, you know, I I don't remember exactly what I said to him at the time, but I'm sure it was just like, dude, I just thought it was funny. Sorry. Like, I didn't mean to like crush your whole life yeah yeah well i mean it was a sensitive thing it is when i think about it in hindsight like all of us like being in pylons and singing Hari krishna lyrics that we had no idea what the fuck they were saying yeah it's pretty ridiculous it was a little yeah it was i mean you know at that time it's like everyone had a shelter t-shirt the band was huge they were huge um we were still sad that youth of today broke up you know, it's just all that stuff. And it's also, it's like, it's not like every single song, you know, was about Krishna. I mean, if you go through and listen to like the shelter stuff, there's a lot of like really cool, like, yeah. you know, socio-political yeah. sort of stuff in there. Mm-hmm. They they wrote one of the, literally one of the best pro-vegetarian songs oh, yeah, you'll, dude, me, you'll ever listen yeah. to. I mean, well, actually that was 108, not shelter. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, and we, we were always, amazing stuff there. We yeah. were always yeah. like first in line to get the free uh, Hare Krishna food at all the hardcore shows. Yes, oh yeah, good true. soup. <laughs> Great soup. I was like, I will make a fake interview about your God, but I want some fucking free food. <laughs> so Yeah, but keep in mind, yeah. all this was happening when we were between the ages of... 15 and 18 right. like <laughs> yeah like barely smart like the fact that we were even allowed to like drive cars and interact with people like in <laughs> hindsight you look back on it and you're like jesus christ not only we shouldn't have been doing that but like you know josh was doing shows and we were both like you know like making quote unquote you know like fanzines that like putting you know words out there to people and like yeah you know, like yeah. we didn't know shit yeah I mean, dude you put a photo of my balls in your zine 
I did. I did. <laughs> what was the deal with that? I was just telling my wife about that, how I used to grab people's cameras at parties and take a picture of my balls. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. So they would Why go develop. You? Do you remember that time Nate Gluck came home from an Ensign tour? Oh, it's the best photos ever. <laughs> They're so horrible. Oh, my God. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, we're about. talking open buttholes, like a lot of, oh, a lot of wild. That was, that but was they an wouldn't en- develop That was an Ensign right? tour. Yeah, yeah. It was an Ensign <laughs> tour, and it was Chris Worrell's camera. And whenever oh. he wasn't looking, they took his camera oh. and would take photos and then it was the kind of that you also like, you know, he, imagine this, you get home from Europe. It's like your first tour yeah. of Europe, you know, oh, you're just I can't like, wait to see my pictures. Yeah. I'm going to get yeah. all my pictures taken of sightseeing and hardcore. And, you know, back then when you get photos developed, there's like some high school girl that's just like <laughs> oh, developing yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. And he had like six stacks of, you know, <laughs> photos. <laughs> And like every other one was somebody just like staring directly into the camera, but holding their balls or like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, dude, it was, uh, I I actually remember sitting in his room looking through those being like, holy shit, this is next level. Didn't they Uh, they even deny printing them at first or like giving them to him? I don't remember that, but I know it was something. (laughs) I just know, I know, I haven't thought of that in probably 20 years, but I I fully, because that's when he lived with Chris Ross. Yeah. Yes, and, uh, it certainly was. Yeah, because Ross was on that tour as well, and he, you know, Ross was always the adult, so he never he never you know. did it. But you know, he was just chuckling, smoking cigarettes while it was happening, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, it, it <laughs> wasn't like his balls, Coke. but it wasn't. He, was, yeah. Yeah, he wasn't <laughs> stopping them, you know. Um, yeah, that's fucking awesome. So wait, so all right, I didn't even know Ferret started from the uh, from the zine. Um, yeah. So. So it's hilarious. Like, so even back then, you guys were like semi competing with each other. In no, a weird I was never way. competing. Like, I was just, I was always like, it had kind of gone like this. Josh got up there to school. And Josh, if I'm correct, Jason Jordan was our first friend to have like a real job in music. Like, you were doing your zine and then. Jason got a job at Sony or some shit. I well, forget that, what he well, did. That, that was a couple of years later, but but Jay, uh, but, but I remember. But but I, that was still the time when I was starting doing something, <clears> and <throat> I was just like, Josh is doing something, and now we got this other dude. Like you know, like right. he's not even doing hardcore shit. Like he's a hardcore kid. He was an encounter and our, our friend and stuff. And now he's like you know actually getting paid mm. and has like a life. And um and Josh, I think at the time had. Because I I didn't do anything until after Land of Greed came out, right. which was the first record you know Josh did. Sure, and uh, with Jason, you know, yeah, with Jason, and I was just always like, you know, and it was never competition. I mean, honestly, nobody helped me get started more than Josh yeah. did. I mean, I, right. I, I I designed like your first ten records. <laughs> I think I mean yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know yeah. I didn't know you were Ferret's early graphic designer. I was. He was. Yeah. He was. Yeah. I did almost I did almost every record. And I didn't I, I designed your logo or I what did I do with your logo? Um the first wait, which, logo or the second logo I made? I don't know. No, like, the, the second logo was the girl that Mike from at the time Overcast later kill switch. He did that. But the, Oh, right, right, right. Oh no, the one before that. Yes, that was you and uh Yeah, me and Joel. No, that was yeah, it was the, that was a straight it was a Varga girl. Massive copyright infringement. <laughs> we just, yeah, me and Joel did we, Yeah, you we can you just that. scan that shit in and put ferret on it. <laughs> yeah, well we put a dead chick on the cover of that disembodied record too, so you know. 
Yes, that's true. Tara, <laughs> yeah, that, that to this day, Tara's like, I hate that cover. It's like, oops. And, uh, that <laughs> yeah. was back when you could like, hey, I'm designing your record and you're not going to approve it, but like, it's done and I'm going to print it. <laughs> and, uh, that shit doesn't fly. Yeah. Anymore. Yeah. Pre email. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to send proofs? Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. What yeah. are we going to do? Yeah. And, uh, just got described. Yeah. Our friend, uh, our friend Spleet. He worked in a, an archives pl- management place. It's just like a warehouse full of old shit that businesses don't know what to do anymore. Oh. And uh, he worked there with like some of the dudes from Lifetime and, and stuff like right. that. And uh, uh, and obviously they weren't good employees. No, and, uh, no. And then so they th- would and like, then Spleek got in trouble for that years later. Remember when he was working? He, at, tr- he was for he, stealing some shit, right? No, no. He pulled a random photo of a woman. To make a fake advertisement for Coney oh, Island Whitefish. That's right. <laughs> and randomly, like this woman's like best friend went to Rutgers and oh, opened and up the it, newspaper yeah. the next day and was like, Why is my friend in a like, you know, used condom Coney Island Whitefish <laughs> ad? You know, and got to the paper. I think that was that was uh, Spleet's big controversy over there. Um, that's true. No, you're right. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. yeah. Because he was the one he found. He pulled a slide, and it was like something from an autopsy. And it's it's uh, actually horrible in hindsight if you look at it. It's just this woman's head and torso. Yeah, I don't think she's got fucking arms. Jeez. And uh, and she had like a name tag stuck on her chest. That I remember. Me and Josh sitting in his room. <laughs> it's so fucking terrible. I was we're like, like I was dude, like, zoom in. You got to take your name off. <laughs> yeah, that's why if you look at the original album cover, there's like, I put like fake numbers over it or yeah, something. Yeah, right. Because her name was on it. I was like, ah, that's like someone's mom or some shit. Now, like the early bands, like, uh, you know, Carl, was Endeavor your first release? Yeah, Endeavor is the first thing I did. That was so, you know, obviously me and Mike went to school together. Um, he started Endeavor while we were in high school. Right. I think me and Josh and Mike were actually in a graphic design class oh, back shit. when they had graphic design classes without computers. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember making like the demo cover for the first Endeavor demo. The yellow one? Um, yeah, the yellow one. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's so funny you say that because like the, the concept of graphic design pre-computer doesn't even like occur to me. Like I yeah, thought it was weird. Called, I it thought was so it was much called more fun. something else. Actually. Oh, dude, we were. I was making like bootleg seven second shirts and like <laughs> um, all kinds of stickers, and it was so fun. Yeah, we Letra had a lot of set, stuff, right? Letra set. Yeah, wasn't that the shit? Yeah, it was cost a fortune too. <laughs> yeah, we. I remember uh, my. I guess it was my junior year because nobody does anything their senior year. But I remember, you know, I was like, oh, I got to get into college. And my parents, like, made me try. And uh, so I, I ran for student office. I ran for vice president of the school. And, uh, hmm. you know, Josh and Kyle, being the good friends they were, decided to help out, unbeknownst to me. And Josh literally stole a photo of me, my third grade class photo. <laughs> he stole it off oh, my... Oh, yeah, you were all fat and freckly. Yeah, he stole it. Off. No, but remember, I had my sweet denim jacket on. Yeah, oh, yeah, but he he stole it off my fridge from my mom, and I walk out in the hallway, and he had made oh, flyers with it all over the school. Oh, oh my god! Yeah, and he was like, "Vote for." Yeah, I forget. Even I wish I had one because it was like a big picture of oh. me from like first or second grade, uh, kid photo, and it was like, "Vote for Carl Severson and something obnoxious." And he literally had hundreds of them just oh, stuck around the school, and That's I was amazing. like. 
awesome. It's a pretty good. Did burn. you win? This is a good burn. I did win. I did win. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Put that, put that shit on my college transcript. <laughs> you uh, are Josh, welcome, Josh. You knew about uh, shock ad campaigns, yeah, way yeah, back in the day, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so wait, yeah, let, a good time. so let's jump ahead a little bit, just so we have enough time to to really get into everything. So, like, say we're in like the you know you know, mid, late nineties now, or, or like 97, 98, when both labels are kind of starting to, to really move. Like what were you guys at the time? What, what was the intention with it? Because, um, it's not as if like running a hardcore label was often like, uh, an enterprise that brought a lot of money. And in those days or like something that, um, would necessarily like be your life. You know, a lot of people did it on the side and I know, you know, you guys actually went to school and were doing stuff like that. So what, by that time, like, what were you imagining you were going to be the label owners forever? Or were you still like having other ideas? No, I think we were just like, just trying to keep our head above water and just like, right. We were just going to shows and just having fun and putting records out. And we didn't really think of the future. I think, I think (laughs) we both had the same sort of thought where we just like, wanted to be a part of it you know like back then like that it was it's all we'd ever done like from i mean we grew up skateboarding and then that was the music we got into and then we started going to shows and you know and you watch all these other people in bands and then the older dudes you know had labels and stuff and like you know like i know for me it was like i just wanted to be a part of it and yeah yeah. i mean that that's why i you know with the endeavor record i was like i mean those guys were some of my closest friends whenever they went on tour i was always with them i always was carrying shit and stuff like that and like you know when they were like maybe we should put a record out and i was like oh maybe i can do that that's that's the way i could get involved and be part of it you know sure and it just kind of you know, I, I don't even remember when I decided where I was like, oh, I just want to keep going with this. I mean, you know, but it was it was one of those things where I was like, shit, I remember. I mean, by then I had graduated college and I think I know I was I was working at Roadrunner at the time. Right. Still doing my label full on. And, uh, you know, but I remember I was just about $60,000 in credit card debt, oh, you know, shit. from yeah. running away. But that was back when like you just check your mail every day and they'd be like, oh, here's a new credit card, 0% interest. You're like, <laughs> Sweet, I'll put out another record. <laughs> and, you know, like, uh, but yeah, I mean, I carried that for, you know, like years and, you know, it was just yeah. being like, all right, no, I'll get it, I'll get over it. I'll get over that hump and stuff like that. And obviously, you know, actually I did, but like, that was the thing. I was just like, I don't know when it was. I was like, all right, I'm going to try and do this for real. And it was just always like, I really just, just want to be a part of it and just keep doing it. Right. I How about you, you Josh? Did you have that moment? Um, I, I mean, I did. I think it was maybe a little bit later because I went to law school right. and fully intended on being a lawyer and practicing law. Right. Um, but I, you know, I took two years off after college, went on tour with Carl and Endeavor and Harvest and Despair and all these bands Went back to law school and then three years later, the label was in a different spot. And I was like, shit. Right. Um, you actually could, had the option of... of I could trying. probably like do this for real, um, but I can't do this and, you know, clerk for a judge in Freehold. <laughs> right. So right. I bailed on that clerkship and then... You oh, know, so you I, had like, a clerkship, like worked I, out and everything. Oh, I had a clerkship. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was, yeah, it was this. It was actually the year that my mom was president of the bar association. Crazy. Um, 
So that looked really you fucking, suspect. You blew your Jewish nepotism <laughs> so bad. I did. You blew it, Josh. I did. I did. Yeah, so I, I remember you Josh been country talking club to me. living by now. You know. I, I, I remember Josh telling me he was like, "Ah, oh, fuck! I got to tell my parents that I'm not going to do this whole lawyer thing." Yeah, They're how did that go? Josh? And I was like, "Yeah, I don't know how the conversation that conversation is going to go." That but. was tough. My my dad was not psyched. Okay. Um, my mom was like, you know, I, 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 I trust you and maybe you can come back in a year or two. And I was like, mm-hmm. eh, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> That's wild. Um, I mean, I can imagine as a parent too, be like, wait, wait, wait. What did I just put into Syracuse? Yeah, I mean, you <laughs> yeah, know, my, like- <laughs> my parents helped me out with college and that was awesome. And I love them for that. Um, but law school, you know, I paid for it. So I knew that if I didn't practice law, like I'm going to have to pay off these loans somehow. Right. Um, and that was pretty fucking scary to think about. Sure. Yeah. That's terrifying. Um, um Carl, at, when you were at Roadrunner at the time, I just got to ask you that. Was that, that was when you, um, did you broke Nickelback, right? <laughs> I mean, I not personally. I mean, but you were I like part of the team a, that like worked. Yeah, on it, right? I was at Roadrunner for like a super interesting time. Yeah, like yeah, I, I was there for the first two Slipknot records and the first two Nickelback right. records, yeah. and you know, I got to work with Soulfly and Sepultura and you know some other stuff. And uh, you know, I, I was only there four years. It's funny. I was talking to Monty the other day, and he was like, "Dude, I listened to like a." I got interviewed for this history of Roadrunner thing. And he was like, I listened to that. He's like, you were only there four years. And I was like, yeah, it was only four years. He's like, I really feel like it was longer than that. And I was like, it was, it was like a very cool, like formative years for Roadrunner. They had yeah. already gotten like, you know, like the, the growing out of it, out of it, I guess. And, uh, so they were just starting to get big. And so I was there for the four years where they just kind of skyrocketed. Sure. You know, Island Def Jam bought, bought them. And owned them for like, or owned a portion of it for two years or so. And then I don't forget the ins and outs of it, but eventually Warner bought Island out and then bought the whole thing. You know, we were there for all that. And I don't know. I got to hang out with a bunch of people that, you know, I probably shouldn't have, you know, like Chad definitely didn't want to hang out with me. And did you spend any one on one with like Chad Kroger? I had some dude, you know, I'll tell anybody that'll listen this the guys in Nickelback. Pretty fucking cool. Pretty okay. Like, is that, is, everybody's gonna be like, oh, it's Nickelback. No, it's, they suck. It's and I was like, dude, you know what? Yeah, like because yeah, they become uh, you know, the spend- poster boys for like. So I, I, even though I, you know, I don't particularly like the music, but right. I have been curious, like, why Nickelback? You know, like, why did dude, they I, I, get I mean, the worst like that? Yeah, why does everybody hate, you know, yeah. I mean, how many bands are massive that have songs that are just like, this is fucking, yeah. is it good? Or is it just like vanilla cupcake <laughs> shit? Who knows? Like, I don't know. But, but yeah, like watching, you know, the, the Nick, the stuff that the work wise with Nickelback was cool. I mean, at one point when I was there, they had done that song for the Spider-Man soundtrack uh, yeah. with, uh, it was like Chad and then the dude from Saliva. Okay. The click, yeah. click, boom song. Right. And so they did that. And then at the same time, How You Remind Me was on the radio huh. and they were, those songs were number one and two. Wow. And at the time, no one had done that shit since Michael Jackson. No way. Period. So that was kind of cool to get to like work through and, and all that. Yeah. And, uh, but no, I mean, I, I spent, you know, like a, a, a you know, a, a handful of, of days where I, you know, would spend all day with those guys or like, you know, end up, you know, at shows and then, you know, out with them afterwards at night. I mean, shit, I remember 
at a, being at a diner in Manhattan with like Chad and one of the other dudes at like fucking three in the morning after a show. And they were honestly, we had a blast. They were, they were a lot of fun. That's nice to hear. And, it wasn't that- and uh, the bass player, whose name I don't remember, which is, you know, <laughs> is what it is. My bad. But uh, that dude had a pretty substantial knowledge of like metal and some hardcore. Like, okay. You know, like that, that was pretty cool. Like he knew who disembodied was. True really? story. Yeah. And did, did he think you were the guy from Puddle of Mud? <sighs> oh, we're going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't there yet. We weren't there yet. But I, was, I was thinking about hitting it. I was Sorry. Thinking about Sorry. It. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. (laughs) This is actually for both of you because, you know, at that time, what you were talking about, Carl, like, Mm -hmm. seemed like... um, the time when like something broke differently for heavy music where like you could actually have Slipknot like on semi mainstream radio. And like, it seemed well, like that, that was the crazy thing. There was two things right at that, that time frame, which was probably night, uh, like 2000, 2001 around there. Uh, you had Sismo down and you had Slipknot and they were two bands that ended up with gold records, but not because of radio. They had gold records that ended up with songs on the radio. Cause I, I used to, you know, like this is what I, I was taught by, you know, dudes at Roadrunner that were, you know, had been at this way longer than me. And then some of this is just what I watched from being there and learning. Like for, for years, like you would look at it and be like, Oh, if this band has a gold record. That means, you know, their labels at best got a tax write off because you got to spend so much money. 
right, on right. to market fucking it. payola and all the, the bullshit that goes with radio and all that. Right. Like, you know, I mean, I, you know, like I saw like the amount of money you spend was insane. And to go gold back then, you know, which is funny because that wasn't that big a deal, but like, you know, it was a big deal, but you were like, you're probably not making money. Mm. Whereas these two bands come along that are like aggressive and chaotic and, and not writing stuff that's like, you know, Nickelback or, or even stuff that's even more poppy, right. you know, like, and they end up with gold records based off of like their, you know, quote unquote street following and like the mm. organic, fo- you know, then, and then, and then they went to radio and then they had an actual organic, real like swell around them because, you know, these kids were actually calling on the phones, radio stations, like play more fucking Slipknot. Right. Yeah. I think it was Wait and Bleed was the the, the first yep. Slipknot single. And yep. I forget the, I forget the System of the Down one, but like, and that propelled both those records to like go even further, you know, as opposed to like radio driving, you know, like labels paying radio basically to drive sales. Mm. You actually had sales driving radio, which in turn right. drove sales, which is what most people probably think. Like that's how it really should work, right? And be like, yes, in <laughs> yes. in an honest world, that's how it should work. But it doesn't but it's never work. It yeah. doesn't. Yeah. But that was really like that was really when things kind of like you know turned a, a corner for metal. And like, yeah, I mean, I remember being at Roadrunner. I forget what tour it was. I think it was Tattoo the Earth, but like. You know, Slayer and Slipknot were going out together and dudes in Slipknot were like, they were like, we will not play over Slayer. Uh, right. People were like, yeah, but you draw way more, you sell more records, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, nope. Yeah. We're not playing not over Slayer. Do it. Not going to be able absolutely to do it. Absolutely not going to do it. Yeah. You know, like, so, you know, it, it was, it was a really cool period to be a part of. I mean, and I learned a ton and I, and I'll, I'll never give more credit to everybody at Roadrunner. Like, everybody was cool to me and like they knew I had my label thing going on and I think they like thought it was fun and cute and we're like hey you know oh, right. maybe you should try this and I was like okay you know like yeah, yeah. I was like what's sound scan and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know and but like yeah there was a bunch of people there that were always like oh this is cool because and nobody cared because I always got my you know like I, I I was good at my job I got my work done so it wasn't like I was just like you know fucking around yeah, doing just like pushing stuff that while I was there time. So like, you know, like it, it was, so it was just, it was a really, really cool period. And I got to work with people that have gone on to be like, you know, fucking monsters in the industry. Yes. I mean, you know, yeah, you the closest with- thing I had to a mentor in music was Corey Brennan. Look at that dude now. Yeah. You know, crazy. Now, like for both of you guys, did that, you know, around that time, it seemed to kind of, to raise the tide for like all heavy music and so did were the trickle offs of that like did you feel it at Trustkill like were you know heavier records just getting a bigger audience like in general? Um, I mean, I can, I can tell you when the tide rose because Josh and I had a conversation about it and he managed to spend even more money than I did. It was <laughs> and Josh and I, I I know you you agree it's it was the Ozfest I forget what year it was oh three. Yeah, oh, no. the one oh, oh, four. Oh, four. Yeah, it was it was the hardcore Ozfest. It yeah. was the one where the second stage was like, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> every time I die and throw down and right. who else did you had on? You had throw down and who else? Bleeding through. Was that you had bleeding through on twice? Well, yeah. They well they came back and headlined that second stage, but the first that's year, right, that's right. Yeah, the first year was throw down, was, bleeding through. Yeah, every time I die, God forbid. But I just remember it was all like because yeah. I remember every time I die, we're the last band to get confirmed for that stage. 
because at the time it was like me and Portland and Rick working together in my apartment in Jersey City. Right. And to get on that tour, like just, just to, to say yes to the offer, you had to send them a $75,000 check. What? And then you also had to figure out, yeah, yeah, that was the deal. Jesus that was the, Christ. uh, that was the quote unquote marketing contribution. That's so fucked up. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> then you, then you, then you throw up another 50 to 75,000 for the one band for their bus and bus crew and all and, that. Yeah. And all that shit. Yeah. So yeah. And we were, but, but that was the time. That's when it rose because we were looking at our victories doing it. Century Media is doing it. Right. Metal Blade's doing it. Like, you know, all these labels that, you know, Josh and I consider ourselves and want to be peers with are all doing it. So yeah, we it's, got a, it. it's a kind of thing, if the water rises and you don't, you sink. So, huh. you know, I mean, that was our mentality. We were like, uh, all right, we're going to write a $100,000 check. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But what was crazy about that time period, that like early to mid 2000s was like, I don't want to say putting a band in OzFest was a guarantee of record sales, but it was pretty fucking close. Mm. I mean, that was, it was such a, it was such a massive um, thing to be a part of that like virtually guaranteed your band success. And I don't know, I don't know if that exists anymore. No, like, nothing like, like that. Like any, and, and you know what, you know what makes it better is if at the time victory goes and buys the band that you spent a hundred thousand dollars to put on Ozfest, they go and buy their first EP that oh, yeah, nobody that was, knew about. That was fun. That victory buys it and then reissues it with unapproved artwork by the band, just puts it out, puts a packaging sticker on it to make it look like a new record. Uh-huh. And it's on the fucking Best Buy Powerwall for fucking $5 less than their actual new album Man. running like it's a new record. And you're Fair. like, oh, that was cool. This is probably going to not help me make my money back. <laughs> wow. It's great. So many interviews. You can go back to how Tony Victory screwed someone. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, I mean, we could have a whole podcast about no, that. Yeah, yeah. Just, I don't want to do just that with literally to... just with me and Carl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't want to get into that <laughs> aggregate right now. Um, yeah, that's wild though that that it was uh, that it changed almost. Like, was there any part of like your, you know, you guys came from the hardcore punk scenes? Like, did you have any scruples about like? the kind of worlds you were getting into and oh, of and, course yeah, yeah like like how did yeah. you navigate that like ethical well you're like it, i mean every day you're like well is this goofy or is this cool you know like right is this corny is this going to sell records but in a bad way is this going to attract better bands you know it's like every decision you make is a you know it's all that chess game right i mean were you able to like carry the kind of the punk rock like ethic into this world somehow yeah i mean you try you know yeah i mean dude do you know how much time i scrutinized over like how much i was going to sell a cd for at middlesex county college shows where i'm like (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna sell this i still remember this like i i would like straight up worry about this constantly like oh kids are gonna think i'm a money-grubbing asshole Mm -hmm. and i remember you know me and josh were set up you know, at folding tables next to each other at some show. At, at, and, uh, at every show and fest. Yeah, always, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, and I, at the time, I had just gotten a Disembodied album, which was, like, I think at the time, maybe the first full album I did. And Josh had the Harvest record. And, uh, you know, I was like, God, was, God forbid you sell it for more than eight bucks. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. so you had a Harvest, you know, you have a Harvest CD for 10 bucks. 
And a kid, I mean, the same kid, I watched him because we're at the same table, <laughs> buys the Harvest record for 10 bucks and is like, okay, cool. And then literally leans over, looks at the disembodied record. I was like, oh, cool, man. How much? And I was like, eight bucks. And he was like, dude, really? Eight dollars? I was like, <laughs> the fuck? And, and that, that's when I realized I was like, you know what? I don't care anymore. Fuck you guys. <laughs> because yeah. there's, there's no, you know, like, you know, there's just like, I'm killing myself. Yeah. You know, yeah. trying to make sure that I'm not, I don't look like the money grubbing asshole. Yeah. And, you know, that sort of thing. And, and you know what? You, you just, you know, now, at a certain now, point, you just yeah, you now, ease off. Now vinyl costs twenty five bucks, and a fest costs two fifty. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You want to buy what a? The, what the fuck happened? <laughs> yeah, we yeah we totally let it go. I mean, you pay. You and I started wanting to get paid. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's what. Uh, we got mortgages. You gotta pay yeah. off that fucking school loan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All of a sudden, your kids are hungry. Yeah. <laughs> So like yeah no but it is true like we look back I mean we were like those kids in high school we were like oh my god this band sold yeah, out whether totally. it was like Quicksand or Sam I Am or you know Bad Religion these bands that signed to majors and were in high school and be like dude it's fucked up they sold out and then like you know cut to ten years later and be like we were fucking wrong yeah so, <laughs> dude I remember when I finally made the decision to go from five dollars four with a can of food. To six dollars <laughs> five with a can of food, I was terrified. As I thought I was going to be castrated like, for that that extra buck. People you know? are going to fucking hate you. Yeah, uh, Carl, I had a funny thing with you, and I don't even know if you remember this, but one of the first tours I went on, I asked you to give me a bunch of CDs to sell at as as a distro. I think I took your stuff and I don't fucking maybe spirit fall. Like, I don't even know who I took at the time. And, you know, of course, like every band who brought a distro with them, I sold like three CDs and ended up like ruining the box and half of them just fucking taking them around the country, <laughs> which is what happened to everyone who took a distro. And, right. you know, I had no money for you. Um, yeah. You were also like 15. Yeah. yeah. About that. And, but I remember, like, you gave me the Sonny from Bronx Tale thing, which I always remember, which was like, <laughs> was like, I was like, dude, I'm like, why did you let me go? You never asked me for the money. Like, it was like, I mean, <laughs> fuck, it was like 75 bucks, but it was like, yeah. and you told me, you're like, you know what? As I've gotten through the industry, like, I learned that sometimes you got to pay 75 bucks to know you shouldn't work with someone again. They're like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, that is some fucking wisdom right there. <laughs> yeah, I don't even want to think about going back and, you know, the, the various things that, like, I lost on. But I, I did always try and keep context. I mean, you know, like, I mean, you know, I've, I've known you since I literally think I met you when you were 15. And yeah. it's funny because back then I was like, oh, my God, I'm so much older than this kid. Yeah. And I was like, well, <laughs> give it a minute. I was saying that in the intro coming into this. I'm like, listen, Josh and Carl aren't that much older than me, but they both still think I'm 15. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I still remember well, the first show I went to. Well, I don't know if it was the first show I went to that you did, but one of the, the Mansville Elks Lodge festivals, which is funny because that place is probably tiny. But in my yeah. head right now, I, I remember back massive. like... Yeah, it was just heads. like Furnace Fest, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, and the people losing their shit and, you know, all that. And, uh, you know, and I remember I was like, I can't believe you're doing this. This is crazy. You're a fucking child. And, you know, like, there's like, I mean, I don't know how many people are there in my mind. It was like at least a thousand. It was, you know? I mean, yeah, like for Matt shows when we were doing the fest, like, yeah, we, it was, you know, we, we weren't proper counting, but there was definitely like, 800, 900 plus people squeezed into that Elks Lodge for those ones. That was, that was pretty nuts. Um, 
So was there ever a band like through these years that both of you were really, really trying to get? Like, were you like ever competing for the same bands or did you have like kind of a behind the table conversation? Like, all right, you go, you can go after that. I don't think it, it ever came up. Like, I think there were bands that we've both had that like one of us, like for whatever reason, didn't do. And the other one did. Oh, right. You know, and in hindsight, like, like I know I remember talking to 18 Visions and not doing it because James consistently makes fun of me for it every time I see him. And obviously that worked out way better for them, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of bands that come around that we both look at and we talk to, whatever, but, you know, there's too many bands out there. Like, we're not going to hurt a 30-year friendship over a band. You know? Yeah, yeah, that was one thing, and and we we tried to do that with with other labels, you know, as well. Like I remember, you know, whether it was like EJ oh, dude, me, Aesthetic me, and for me, years, with yeah, me. me and you were way too nice to all the other labels. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this is also true because we all you we know? always treated every other label like we treat each other. Yeah, and and then all of a sudden you're just like, oh wait, you're signing one of my bands? Cool. Yeah. Oh, now you're being a dick because I was being yeah. too fucking nice. Cool. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of which, Carl, you know Static Lullaby still owes me like 60 bucks for a bag, right? (laughs) (laughs) See, that's a whole different podcast. You just got to get, you got to do a podcast with Rick and get him to talk about his years tour manager. Dude, I hit up Rick. It's pretty funny that I... That's the band that broke him. I hit up Rick (laughs) to, to get like info about this. Of course, you know, Rick has, you know, nothing but great things to say about you guys and the labels, but most of the stuff he wanted to bring to me, I'm like, yeah, Carl's not going to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he's going to talk about that one or that one or that one. Like, you know, it's like, Rick, you know, my wife and you've met my, my kids call you uncle. Yeah. 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 Um, the one that he told me about, when, when did you, Break a mic somewhere and throw cash in someone's face. Oh, that sounds like a Carl move. <laughs> that was uh, that was the one time Scott Lee did New Jersey Metal Fest instead of uh, uh, the New England Metal Fest. Uh, I remember yeah, that when it was yeah. freezing cold. Yeah, it was super cold. No heat. No played. heat in convention hall. Yeah, convention hall. Terrible sound. We played though; it was fun. Bunch of people there, and it was good. But yeah, at the, the end of the set, you know, your standard Sennheiser mic. You know, it's got the the mic grill on it, and they're all smashed to shit, and worthless. Yeah, and it has no bearing on the sound of the microphone whatsoever no, at all. No. And we finished, and I was always nice. Like I literally wrapped the cord up and everything. I didn't like drop the mic and walk away or anything yeah. stupid. I like wrapped the cord up and went over and handed it to. It wasn't even the sound guy; it was the monitor guy or whatever. The stage guy, and uh, and as I was walking away, I just hear him go like, "What the fuck?" And I turn around, and I was like, "What?" And he was like, "Dude, you bent the grill on this." And I was like, "Yeah, dude, it was like that." Yeah. And uh, I also know you can replace that for like pennies, like sure. it is what. Yeah. It, and uh, and he just like for I don't know if he was just tired because he didn't realize he was gonna you know have fifty bands shitty bands in a row play right. all day long right. in the yeah. cold. Yeah. But he was just like super grumpy and wouldn't let it go. And uh and whatever. He he said something that poked my button as I was I was like walking away and he said something else and I kind of like snapped and turned around and I had like a twenty dollar bill in my pocket. 
And I went up to his face and just like put it in my hand <laughs> and, and smashed it into his face and was like, here you go. Wow. Fuck you. Wow. And, uh, keep in mind, anyone that doesn't know who Scott Lee is, he's four times Carl says. Well, that was the best part because the dude got all mad and wanted to fight me. And I was like, all right. I was angry by then. So I was going to, you <laughs> know, up I was like, all right, let's, yeah. let's do it. And that's when it was Scott Lee and his, his, uh, his stage manager who, God, I'm forgetting his name right now. He actually just passed away during COVID, which is horrible. Yeah. But he was he was one of those dudes that was a fixture at New England Metal Fest. And right. It was always awesome. But literally, I wish there was a photo of it because one of the they were on each side of me with one hand under each arm, just carrying me off the stage, <laughs> my little with like my little legs kicking, and they're like, and they're like, let me get him, let me get him, let me get him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, but yeah, that was. I was angry. <laughs> so, I mean, I would like, you guys have also had a unique path in the fact that like, you know, both labels kind of wound up in situations where, you know, you ended up losing control and having to restart. Like how much were you guys, um, you know, supporting each other through that? Cause it, it kind of happened at a similar time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, Carl, oh. Carl was like a yeah. year before I did, but, even when Carl was doing it, I was watching Carl do it going, huh, I wonder if that's going to happen to me. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what? Yeah. I mean, my, my whole scenario was, you know, I guess it was a little different and it was, you know, we, we had an opportunity, you know, at, at the time, um, some of the people that had been at our, our distributor for years had moved over to Warner. Right. Had come and was like, Hey, you know, we, we buy you. And, uh, at the time, I mean, in hindsight, yeah. Not a good idea. But at the time, we're like, wow, this is more money than I possibly could imagine. Mm. So, you know, seemed like a good idea. Um, and, uh, but you know, it's a standard thing when you, you know, you sell a company and, uh, it's one thing you're like, well, I'm not selling all of it, but like, yeah, you are. I mean, that's the way the deal works. And right. you sell it all. I mean, you, you sell a controlling share and then, you have a term where it's a year, it's two, three years. And at the end of that, you know, they'll buy the rest at a multiple or you do what I did and, you know, you sell your company and three months later, Tower Record closes and the whole music industry completely and totally <laughs> changes. The landscape is a hundred percent different right. and every projection that we had done our deal predicated on became a fantasy. Wow. Because over literally overnight when Tower closed, you know, all the rest of retail was like, well, shit, huh. we could close. Well, we're going to spend way less money. And so we're going to stop, you know, buying as many CDs and all that sort of shit. And yeah, it fully changed overnight. So like in the end, you know, my deal was like, you know, it was good at the time. I mean, admittedly, I was super excited about it at the time. Sure. I mean, you know, like financially it was, at, was massive. If you put that deal in front of me again, I'd fucking laugh at you. I'd be like, what am I going to do with that kind of money? But at the time, yeah. It was more money than I could, you know, imagine. And it was amazing. And, you know, so it was what it was. I mean, I, I definitely, in, in hindsight, you know, I, I'd love it if I still had control of that catalog. I mean, shit, if I still had control of that catalog, I wouldn't have to do anything. Right. Um, mm. So, you know, it just kind of is what it is. Yeah. Um, so it was totally, but, uh, it was totally tied into, when you say tower, was that just the overall, like, uh, uh, 
you know, the end of digital, like, or the beginning. No, of no, the- it wasn't even that. Tower was the first big, the first huge retailer to close. Uh, and the way right. it used to work was store, like you put out a record and you would solicit retailers mm. and half the time that meant paying them and be like, all right. And they would take like, oh, I want you to take 20,000. I want Best Buy to take 20,000 of the eight, this every time I die. Season. Right. And I want Tower to take 20,000 and I want Circuit City to take 5,000, you know, all these various retailers and they do it. And basically they would, they would look at it and they'd figure out what, you know, they sell first week and then they had an algorithm, you know, like a multiple and they were like, all right, so we sold that. This is what we think we're going to sell in a year. And retail would literally keep that in their warehouses, mm. what they thought they could sell over the course of the next year. Wow. So they would, you know, they would buy that from you and sit on it mm. and then hope to sell it. Whereas, you know, tower closed, they were like, you know, like, why the fuck would you sit on returnable stock for a year? that you're not selling, you know? So everybody started thinking that. So they would take, you know, instead of taking a year's worth of stock, you know, it it would, it it kind of trickled back. Well, trickle quickly. They'd be like, all right, well, we'll take six months until, until, you know, to the point like, and this was before digital even really kicked in. You know, they were taking like, we'll take a month's worth. So all of a sudden right there, you know, labels that were like, oh, we're going to put out this record and you're, you know, selling hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of CDs for them to sit on. Now you're selling, you know, tens of thousands. Right. Even though you're going to sell the same amount, they're just not buying it, you know, all at once. So this was like the pre-digital, but like the, when when the music started going into the big box and stuff like that. Because I remember yeah. when I worked at Curmudgeon, which, is, which I did, you know, the record store towards the end of it. And there was a couple of times we had to go to Best Buy to get something because it was cheaper at Best Buy than the distributor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's like, because the label paid so much money to get right. it to be that cheap. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. If someone was on the power wall on Best Buy and into Best Buy Circular, so right there, you know, like... It's five bucks a CD. Yeah. Yeah. It would be five bucks a CD on the power wall. Right. But you paid them $20,000 for it to go in the power wall. So crazy. You know? Yeah. So, right, you know, like that. that's just how that was the cost of it. Yeah. And then if you wanted to be in the circular that went in the newspaper, you know, that was like another 10 or something like that. So you spend, you'd give Best Buy $30,000 to buy 20 or 30,000 CDs. Isn't it funny when people think if they don't sell, they can return. Right. Right. Isn't it funny when people think this industry is predicated on the merits of your music? No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Josh, Josh, for you, was it, was it like a a very similar deal or, or was it kind of a different context? Uh, It was different, but similar. I mean, the ending was the same. (laughs) Um, I mean, we both, stopped and started fresh with a new label. But um, I mean, it's crazy. Like thinking back now, the difference between the mid 2000s and the late 2000s, just in, just like what Carl was saying, just in like the amount of records we were shipping and selling and, you know, but so in the mid 2000s, you know, I had numerous bands selling a hundred thousand records and we were shipping hundreds and hundreds of thousands of CDs and then in 2007, I switched from Sony to Universal, and Universal paid a fuck ton of money for me to move over there. And they thought that they would make all that money back on all the sales from what they saw from the last couple of years. And of mm-hmm. course, that didn't happen. Um, none of those records ended up selling what everyone thought they would. And then, <clears throat> you know, Universal took probably half a million returns. Wow. When retail decided 
that they wanted to not. Yeah, have, that's a good point because not have when CDs retail anymore. wanted to start returning, they all of a sudden they would return so much at once that it's like, all right, we're going to release records for the next year just to break even on how upside down we are because they just returned. Oh, when I, when, I, worth when, of when I say half a million returns, I'm not exaggerating. That's <laughs> yeah. crazy. Yeah. We literally got over half a million. Most of them were destroyed because there's just nothing that could be done with them. Of course, the distributor charges you to destroy them. That's fun. Wow. Um, Jesus. Oh, yeah, dude. I remember, I remember sitting at my desk when we had the office in Princeton pulling the trigger on paying someone oh, thousands and, of dollars to destroy CDs. Dude, it wasn't yeah. thousands. It was more than because, and oh. Benny, you'll appreciate this because you're a fucking hippie. <laughs> like, <laughs> I paid like two cents a unit extra to quote unquote recycle them uh-huh. instead of destroy them. And I was like, all right, so this is me saving the planet. You know, those things went in a fucking Oh, you know they did. <laughs> yeah. But I paid more to recycle them yeah. and it was 300,000 CDs. Oh yeah. my God. That I just paid to be quote unquote recycled. So yeah. between <laughs> the two of you, you had to destroy 800,000 CDs. Oh, way more, way more, way more. Oh, way more than that, God. for sure. Yeah. That is so astonishing. Instances. So that's and astonishing. If, and if, if you think about, that's just Trust, Kill, and Ferret. Think about, right, yeah. Think about, like, Metal Blade and Epitaph and oh Victory and, like... Dude, Victory easily millions. Easily. Remember, remember that mm-hmm. Hawthorne Heights record that came out? Yeah. It shipped gold. I mean, it shipped. Didn't it ship platinum or something? <laughs> I think it did. It shipped. It shipped fucking something <laughs> insane. Yeah. And Benny, that means shipped is like the number how many you ship right. because if you sh- you know like so Not it ships sell. and back then they kind of counted those as sales right. and like and it was like this insane amount of units oh, and it, then it, it had its first week. And it was like less than 10% of what they shipped. <laughs> oh and all that shit came all back. All that shit and, came and, back. Everything, and that everything came back. All got burned. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. I, so, yeah. I'm a little disappointed we didn't have some kind of... I mean, Josh, you had the space for it. We could have burned these. <laughs> you know? Oh, dude. Oh, dude. I, trust me. No, no, I we, filled we, the old hot tub. That. We did that. I, <laughs> I took so many CDs back and so many records and so yeah. much dumb shit thinking like, oh, I could sell this eventually. Like, Right, yeah. right, right. No, because that was in the 80s. They had cutout bins. We missed that. That might have been in the early 90s before we really knew what we were doing. Mm. But because I remember the Roadrunner guys telling me, like, when you had a record, like, oh, we made half a million of these and we sold 15. What are we going to do with them? Oh, you sell them to these places called cutout bins where they'll give you, like, 50 cents a CD. And they all end up in Mexico or some shit like that. (laughs) But, like, you know, in hindsight, that ruled because we were actually paying that much to destroy them as opposed to getting paid for it. But, no... When I closed my last office before, you know, um, when Good Fight changed up how we're doing things. You called me up and I came over. Yeah, Josh, Josh came over. I had an industrial-sized dumpster. And, and we just and him were like boxes of CDs. Wow. <laughs> we, just, we just throwing CDs in a dumpster. Trying not to tear up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Was that, like, I mean, oh. but that sounds, since it was the two of you and it, was it kind of like a cathartic, like, it all was, right, cause this it was, era is over honestly, and now like, a new one is starting? Yeah, it, it actually, it felt... Kind of good. This was like 2010. Yeah. yeah, it was two thousand. It was 2012. It was 2012. I remember pretty vividly. Oh, okay. That was what. That's when I retooled how we did Good Fight. Yeah, and then uh-huh. took it back over as just mine. And that's we were crazy. like, yeah, like filling up dumpsters were the CDs. But I'm like, man, maybe like digital will catch on. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. Who knows? This streaming shit could be cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's wild, man. But I didn't yeah. know that. I remember, I uh, what was the last bamboozle at Giant Stadium parking lot? What year? I think it was year? just the last one. I don't remember Wait, what, what year. What year was that? Like, we, like, that was the one we played. Like 2007, I want to say. Oh, yeah. So, Probably around that. So yeah. whatever that year was. It was a good show. Oh, it was amazing. But I remember that was when I I had first started taking back like thousands of CDs. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'll just, I'll take back a couple thousand. I'll pass them out at fests. That'll be cool. So I'm standing outside of Bamboozle passing out CDs, like literally like free full length album CDs to people. Um, and kids would grab them and just throw them on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, and I was like, awesome. what the fuck am I doing with my life? Like, why, <laughs> yeah. why am I doing this? Yeah. Like no one, yeah. no one cares. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No absolutely. one, no one even wanted a free fucking CD. Yeah. Yeah. And then, they're like, well, so how am I? Yeah. We definitely both had that moment where like, well, what the fuck are we going to do? Like, we got to go sell these things that, you know, are people are having trouble giving away. Right. You know, you know? Yeah. like, yeah. like there was that, that weird period where really like when iTunes and digital downloads went away and CD, yeah, and then following it, CDs went away. Like there was that period where it was like, "Fuck, this streaming thing is—it's going to be tricky because basically no one's making any money, right?" You know, and then I don't know streaming got different and better. I heard, and, yeah, uh, I heard it's a thing now. It's yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of a thing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not as good as it should be, but it's yeah. it's a thing. Mm-hmm. And at this point, if you're still here, like you know, me and Josh and everybody else that is still here, you've adapted and made it work. Right. You know, you kind of yeah, change yeah. how your business yeah. is. I treat- and then the advent of vinyl. Yeah, you know, like that that kind of changed. Vinyl vinyl is the greatest because it's non-returnable. But the music industry yeah. is fucked up. One way sales fucked right. up so bad by allowing CDs to be returned. That was the fuck up. Oh yeah, yeah. Huh. What what yeah, like started like if, that? Who was like the first domino for that? I don't know. We should go fight them. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, it, it was always that way when we were there. Right. Like, I still remember the first person explaining it to me. Be like, oh no, they like they can just take send this back to you, and you have to pay them back. And I was like, like wait, but what? but why? They bought it, and they were like, yeah, no, this is just the deal. And I was yeah. like, okay, but right. like if you sell, you know, if you sell Hot Topic a bunch of T shirts, that's a one way sale. Right. So that's why. You know, you'll see those. That's bizarre. Dude, even on, even like know. fanzines and like magazines, you sell to Barnes and Noble. That's one way. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's why you see like Barnes and Noble when they can't sell something. You know, you can go out back because we used to be punk rock kids and we would do this. And you go out <laughs> by the dump, the dumpsters if you want to get free magazines, and they just all have the covers torn off, so you can't resell them. You know, but you know, it's funny. The that, one it's industry, there's one industry that works similarly because I used to have to do it was newspapers. Uh, when I used to work at like delis and stuff when I was a kid, if you know the leftover newspapers of the day, you had to cut the top strip off. Yeah, because that's where the uh, that's how they yeah could scan it or right whatever. and save them all, and then they would credit you back money for the extra newspapers. That was like a, a thing back in that day. Oh, back in that day, back in my day, Carl, <laughs> the bass player from Nickelback is Chad's brother, Mike. Yes, yeah, they're brothers. I forgot his name was Mike. There's yeah, three Mike. Krogers in this band. I didn't know that. I don't. Who's the third? Oh, it said the, the original was a cousin, Brandon Kroger, as well. He's bummed, huh? When they were, <laughs> should have held on. When they were covering Led Zeppelin and Metallica songs as Village Idiot, that was their first. Yeah, name. I remember the two. 
Um, and I know the drummer that was around when I was working with them isn't in the band anymore, but uh, I do remember there was like a funny thing. They played a show in Philly and like the night afterwards. Uh, wow. Look, look at this. Yeah. It says... It says Chad Kroger asked his stepfather to give him $4,000 so the band could record their first demo, a seven-track EP. That's a lot for a first demo. He said the band spent half the money to record and spent the other half on magic mushrooms. Did, <laughs> did Nickelback get down like that? Were they... Were they wow. uh, not when I was with not them. When you were with them. But do you think that's a real thing, or is that somebody going back being like, oh, we got to come up with a cool Listen, story? Listen, I'm on Wikipedia just... right now where... No, that's and you know it's true. At one point... <laughs> My Wikipedia page was uh, was just Sidney Poitier's bio, so <laughs> so I don't I don't necessarily believe it. No. Yes, you can't necessarily count on no, it. No, I don't think so. True. Yeah. But anyway, I brought up Rick, and not for embarrassing stories, but I asked Rick's top three records from Ferret and Trustkill. But I want to hear: Are you guys? If we can, if we can guess them. Yeah, I want to see if you can guess Rick's favorites because <laughs> for anybody not listening to this, Rick, that's a good question. Rick is like, what is he of Ferret Records? Like the Prince? I mean, Rick was my first employee, and to this day, the Duke, you know, like the he still Duke. works with Good Food. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, all my kids call him Uncle Rick. I mean, you know, like he's. I even call I call him Uncle. He's Rick. My, he's, he's he's my baby's godfather. Yeah, yeah, and he, Carl, he's gotten me. And uh, Carl's my other godfather. Other one. <laughs> Rick's definitely saved me from multiple beatings over the yeah. years on tour <laughs> that I probably deserve. I've even managed to get into that. Um, That's I true. saved you That's from true. a couple beatings myself. Um, Wait, did did Rick like any Trust Kill record? Rick, I mean, I, I obviously anything Poison the Well did. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. all right, so yeah, so track- true story. Rick sang for Poison the Well once. He did. And I to this day I cannot find video of it, but I. I, Almost positive I just asked him recently if there's photo evidence, and he said yes, but he won't send it to me. Wait, yeah, I saw it once. I know I've seen it, but I don't have it. Wait, while this is fresh on my mind, Josh, I have a memory in my head that I I never knew if it was a wives' tale or not. Okay, I remember something from back in the day where Poison Oil needed to go on tour. They wouldn't. Oh yeah, that that's true. Did you call? I want to know what it is. <laughs> I think. Did you? I'm sure now. And from my memory, you either threatened to or did oh. call the Best Buy Jeffrey worked at to try to get him fired. No, that is that is <laughs> insane. I thought you meant um, one time I had to like pay someone's rent or something like okay, like like his mom or something. I don't know. Something weird okay. happened, and I they were like, "We can't go on tour until this is paid." And I'm like, "All right, oh. here, like." Whatever it is, but okay. Oh, you do that, I, dude. I pay bands heating bills and electricity yeah, yeah. bills. Some, and someone's mom needs that rent shit. And I'm all like, the time. all right, yeah, mom. Right. Here's the rent check. Yeah, it's your mom. Can yeah. you go on tour now? Okay. But I, no, so I this Best never, Buy thing is that's a wives' tale. I that's don't know a wives' tale. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think the other one that might be my fault, but I made a joke on the Trustkill website once that Jeff had just learned English. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> like you right asshole. before Opposite of December came out, and yeah. then like that kind of like took a. Um, yeah, mildly racist turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not great, not great. I'll but, still uh, always give Jeff credit. He is the one who taught me how to make an apple bowl, and oh. that has been just absolutely invaluable through the years. That skill. I still remember when uh, Nora and Poison the Well were touring, and back, you know, we were all tight. So, like every time we would stop at a gas station, 
it would just be a different mix of us in the van. Right. So we wouldn't even go back band to band. It would just be like whoever yeah, was yeah, hanging yeah. out would just switch bands. So, and I remember like getting in their van and uh, he had the apple bong thing going <laughs> on. And I was like, dude, are you gonna, you're about to drive. And he was like, yeah, dog, it's all right. And I was like, all right, I'm going back to the North Bay. Oh, <laughs> you fucking prude. Uh, uh, I, think, I, I think I know the three for Trust Kill. Carl, you want right. to go first? Uh, for Truskill? Well, no, no. But I mean, uh, no, well, you, no, you do. You do Carl, You do ferry. Josh does Truskill. I. It would be so much easier to go through the the records that the ferret records that Rick hates the most. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, that would be easy. too. I would like that top three as well. <laughs> yeah. That he liked the most. That Rick. All right, for Truskill, right, I'm going to say Poison the Well, opposite of December. Uh huh. Um, Nora, Losers Intuition. Hmm. And harvest, um, living with a god complex. You're close. Yeah, that's accurate. So you got two of the three bands. Oh shit! But that's he has poison the well, tear from the red. Oh, oh well, of course, because it's got Carsey Street on it. Right, exactly. That's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> two, uh, throw down haymaker. Oh shit! All right. And three was never ending U line by Nora. Oh, stop nice. it. <laughs> you think it's Stop it. Stop it. I mean, not my favorite, Dora, but I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, so Ferret Records yeah. would have been um, uh, Disembodied If God Only Knew. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, fuck, all right. Now I got to figure out the rest of these. <laughs> that, one, that one jumped out. And I'm like, what else did I put out? You go back. That Rick actually liked. Yeah, right? Um, I don't want to, you know, silence on a podcast. It's just, you know, that's bad. It builds suspense. Uh, well, uh, Converge, Petitioning the Empty Sky. Okay. And Torn Apart, Self-Titled. Oh, shit. Yeah, I mean, great records, but no. He, he did. Number no. one was Disembodied, If God Only Knew. Said number two, the Bronx, the Bronx. Oh, oh, that's right. Fuck and number three, remembering never, God save us. Oh, God shit. save us. Deep cut. Yeah, and that's a good, that's a good record. Yeah. So those are. What are his bottom three? <laughs> X five. Uh, well, I don't want to say that but... because he's he's friends with some of those bands, so I don't want to fucking bring it yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I will say that like one of my favorite moments was when I was signing from Autumn to Ashes, and we were talking about it. And uh, and and I was like, dude, this band is awesome. We had like their demo, and we had just gone out to Long Island to see them. And that's you know, after like a band, if I'm going to drive all the way fucking Long Island, <laughs> and uh, you know, and I, and we were driving home afterwards, and he was like, I don't know, dude, it fucking sounds like Iron Maiden with mosh parts. And I was like, I know, that's exactly why it's so great. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I asked yeah. the same thing from Ross, but his. He just gave me like a ton of bands. He's like, ah, torn apart, for the love of, throwdown, nor. But of course, my favorite one's nor. I mean, he wore the throwdown yeah. hoodie at his own wedding. <laughs> <laughs> so you know. Oh my god, it's too funny. That's true. <laughs> yeah, Benny, you did a bunch of tours with us. Yeah, with Nora. yeah, a ton. Yeah, I was doing travelers with I us. I was your roadie, which was always I awesome. Was, I was just someone was just asking about that the other day. They're like, "You were a roadie." I'm like, "Ask Carl Severson how I was." I'm like, "I'm a yeah." How was I as a roadie? I, you were great. You actually, as soon as you stopped doing it, they made me learn how to set up the drums. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> 
I remember but, Ross would just send me out with you in Portland. And oh, yeah, just like, like, make sure these like, idiots get back. Yeah, make sure they get I'm like, you know, I'm like six years younger than both of them, right? Like, <laughs> And I'm going to need Carl's black card to get us out of trouble anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. The black card. We, it was fun. We needed that. Yeah, that's gone. We needed that. <laughs> Smarter days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's tell the people the real reason you had to shut it down, Carl. Yeah, it was the black card. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what happened to Fair. Yeah, yeah. that's what mm-hmm. You just, uh, yeah, you, um, you James hardened it. Too many nights. Yeah. But so I want to ask you guys this because, you know, as we've told the story, you are, you put out a ton of like seminal hardcore metal records, ones that are going to be around forever and bands that, you know, broke and you, you obviously had um, just a really good ear and an eye for, for the bands that were going to be successful in this world. And like, after all these years involved in heavy music, there's two questions. What is it exactly that heavy music does for people? And what are the necessary elements to like make it effective? I don't, I don't, like, I feel like it's completely, and this is going to be me saying get off my lawn sort of thing. <laughs> like, I feel like it's just totally different now than when we came up. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about earlier, when I met Josh and Kyle and Mike, like, this was a time when I didn't have friends and was like, holy shit, I have friends. And then we actually started doing something and we were a part of, you know, this and it was like a counterculture and, and it was cool. And I don't necessarily know if, people get that same sort of thing out of it now. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I mean, I'm 46, you know, so who am I to say what, you know, a 16-year-old kid gets about it, right. you know, gets out of it. But like, you know, I'm in a weird spot where, you know, my my oldest son has really, really, really dove into this type of music. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, he grew up, you know, with me dragging him to shows and, and uh, you know, I think since he was like seven or eight, I've been, you know, taking him to shows and stuff like that. Putting him in a gaslight video. That's right. That's right. He was, yes, exactly. For all your listeners, (laughs) my son, if you go to, uh, yeah. And uh, Benny, was that your first video? Uh, First gaslight video? No, no, it wasn't. No, but it was the video for the 59th sound, the little cute kid in it. He's mine now. And he's also, now he's six, seven. (laughs) But uh, but, yeah, but he's like deep, deep. These days, you know? Yeah, <laughs> but he's, he's deep, deep into it now and, you know, and, and he loves it. And we, we talk every day about it and he's always sending me music and I'm sending him stuff and it's all that. And, you know, but I just got to assume that people can't get it the way we necessarily got it back then. Um, I mean, for me, I didn't have anything else. There wasn't any, I wasn't going to play sports. I, I, I didn't make friends anywhere else like you know, it was like skateboarding and punk and hardcore kind of just all went together and, and just grew into that. I mean, that turned into my whole, like, not only like, you know, any semblance of a social life I had, but like my friend group and how I grew up there. And, <clears throat> right. and you know, like, you know, eventually like my career and, you know, and I still, all those same people, that that's who I spend all my time with, you know, like, so I don't know. I mean, but yeah, the, the heavy music thing, yeah, it's heavy and it wasn't all heavy. I mean... Would you call Still Life Heavy? They're one of the best bands ever. The double LP, fucking untouchable. <laughs> you know, Ashes, you know, like that sort of stuff. You know, when you go through. So I, I feel like it's some of it was just like coming through that whole community aspect of it. Right. Sort of thing. I see. Some more came from that. What about you, Josh? Yeah. What do you think like 
heavy music does for people and what are like the necessary tools to make heavy music good? I think you just, it's got to have emotion. I mean, it's weird to use the word emotion because that's where the word emo came from. Right. But heavy music at the end of the day is a outlet to express your, your angst and your rage and your, you know, whatever you're pissed off at. Um, and that's all emotional. And, you know, like Carl said, like <clears throat> hardcore to us was emotional, whether it was still life or chain of strength or marauder. Um, mm, yeah. They all sound different, but they're all emotional and they kind of, I don't know, they, they elicit feelings that other music doesn't. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting because people think that heavy music has to come from like sheer force, but it's uh, yeah, that's a that's yeah, that's not a thing. I don't think we never were like, oh my god, it's like you know, angry. I mean, yeah, we were kids and we liked to mosh and all that sort of stuff, right. and you know, but it wasn't like I mean, and, and sure, there's there were people back then, and there's people now that are like just you know want to go and fight and all that. Like, <laughs> sure, I don't know. I mean, I I can count on the one hand how many fights I've gotten into at shows and like it was never when I was younger you know right, um, right. <laughs> you know that, that that's never what we were doing we just you know for us it was just like that was just what we liked and but I remember I was sitting like you know scour over lyrics and you know read them and learn them and and, and stuff like that and I want to find out about the bands and that was back before you could fucking google them right. you know so like you know I'd fucking write letters Fucking true story. I wrote Lifetime, their first piece of fan mail ever. <laughs> is that did you? really? I did. And Ari wrote me back. No way. <laughs> you I still got it in the box somewhere. It? Yeah. yeah you still I mean, somewhere, yeah. That's but yeah, awesome. I wrote them their first piece of fan mail ever, which is, you know, embarrassing, but kind of awesome. No, that's kind of awesome. Not, not for nothing. I mean, you know, like fucking everything that band put out, I absolutely love. Sure, sure. So the last thing before we get out of here is just like, you know, you're both family people now have been for a while. What are the types of like, uh, things from your journey, you know, um, about, you know, alternative music and culture that you've brought into like your family life and, and, uh, how do you balance the, the question authority level of punk rock while having your children listen to your authority? Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I guess, Josh and I have different perspectives on it because my kids are older than his. Yeah. So like I've, you know, he'll deal with, and I've got both boys and his oldest is a girl. Mm -hmm. So, um, but like, you know, with, with my kids, like one of the things like, you know, I started early on, like, you know, playing music for them whenever we're going and trying to like, you know, like expose them to music, but like, you know, a lot of music there's bad words in and, you know, that sort of stuff, you know, swearing mm -hmm. and, and all that. And like, and I grew up in addition to hardcore, you know, me and Josh, we listened to like tons of hip hop and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and I've kind of always been of the mind and remember, you know, I mean, this is well over a decade ago now, probably 15 years ago now, <laughs> you know, with my oldest being like, you know, like, yeah, like I'm not going to, you can listen to anything. I don't, I don't, you know, you want to listen to Eminem. I, I don't, don't care what they're saying. I mean, listen to it, you know, if <laughs> right. you think it's interesting, you know, like I'm not going to censor any sort of music because, you know, that never happened to me. Sure. And uh, yeah, and, you know, I want you to grow up to be smart enough that if you're like, oh, this is like misogynistic, you know, trash or this is just 
culturally irrelevant or is it just, you know, like just sucks sure. or if it's just swearing and being crazy for the sake of being crazy. But like, I want you to see past that as well, huh. you know, but at the same time, you know, a lot of times they use that to emphasize points in music and stuff like that. And that's, you know, like, and I want you to get that out of it as well. Hmm. You know, I, I've, I've wanted him, you know, both my kids to like really get into music and appreciate it and actually listen to it, what, what people are saying. And, you know, um, but outside of that, as far as, you know, like, other aspects of life, you know, I mean, they see how I work and I'm sure Josh's, Josh's kids are going to grow up seeing the same way he works. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, neither of us are putting on suits and ties and, you know, coming home utterly fucking miserable and, (laughs) you know, hating our, our jobs and stuff. Like, you know, we we both, I mean, we kind of lived the dream. Like we had hobbies and that's what we ended up doing with our lives. And, you know, like we're like actual proof that that's possible, you know, and it's not something that you just fucking slip into like, no nah, the shit right. was hard yeah i think and we, yeah i think what we can learn from me and you and what i want to teach my kids is just pave your own path mm. you know like yeah don't don't think that the options that are out there are your only options like if there's something you love that you want to do just go fucking do it make it happen i love that that's like the the classic punk rock spirit right there right yeah i mean yeah, Carl and I loved hardcore. We had bands that we loved and we wanted the whole world to hear them. And so we did it. I love it. Yeah, and, and we're, you know, we work with and are friends with other people that like came through same sort of stuff we did, you know, or, you know, even like, or, you know, much harder. I mean, I'm not going to say my upbringing was hard at all. You know, like my parents were super good to me, but, you know, we, we know a number of people in music that have gone on to be super successful, more successful than us that, you know, had the same thing and they just found something they loved and they just hustled for it and, and made it work That's through it. work, you know, and just you push for it and you, you fight for it. And there's a, there's a ton of people out there that's been, you know, super impressive. And then, you know, at the same time, like, you know, as, as we get older and, you meet people outside of music. We call them citizens, kind of as a joke. But like, <laughs> right, right. You know, when you, when you meet them and you're like, oh, this dude may have, you know, make a bag of money. I don't know if he's a fucking software engineer or, or something like that. But like, you look at it and you're like, I, I don't want that life, man. You know, <laughs> yeah. if it meant more money, it's still like, eh. you know, like that. that's the thing. Yeah. Um, you know, like you got to be, you got to be happy with what you're doing. Like there's nothing wrong with working. But if you hate every single second of it, you know, it's not worth it. You just got to figure it out. Fuck yeah. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I don't want to, you know, I would never impress upon anybody that like, oh, if you don't like what you're doing, don't do it. They're like, no, like, you know, I've always said this. The best time to look for a new job is while you are gainfully and fucking employed, you know, <laughs> right. like, yeah. yeah, you know, don't, don't wait till you're fucked and <clears throat> have no money. Cause then you need to do anything yeah, when yeah. you're doing something, even if you don't like it, keep doing it, deal with it and figure out your exit. Strategy, yeah. Try not to you know? bottom out. Cause it's fucking hard to get up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, a lot of people are just like, Oh, that guy, fuck. I don't want to yeah, do this. So I'm not going right. to do it. Be like, well, you know, you're going to get fucking cold and hungry. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. That is wise. Well, gentlemen, thanks for hanging out for this long. I appreciate it. And also thank you both for not only uh, putting out some of my favorite records of all time, but both being uniquely cool to me over the years and helping me out and giving me shows. And, you know, you guys are part of the, the path that I went on. You talk to other people and, you know, you guys help me get 
get there. So I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I love you both. Nice. Absolutely. Love you too. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Love you too, buddy. Oh, Brad, Brad, Brad. Oh, Benny, Benny, Benny. Taking a stroll down memory lane. Mm. What if you were 16 years old and you could have put a band out? Who, like, what kind of label would you have had? Oh, definitely punk rock label, like full on, you know. I mean, at sixteen, what like what I was listening to at sixteen, or like who was the as, local if I was a band? Sixteen year old now, what would I put out? Is that what you're asking? No, I'm asking when you were sixteen in your weird town. Yeah, who was who was who was the band you would have put out if you were like I'm going to throw a record out? Uh, I don't know. I mean, when I was sixteen, I was barely starting to get into punk rock. Mm. I was so sheltered. I was listening to like fucking, uh, what was I listening to? Like fucking Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> still, oh, still at 16, you're on Don't Fear the Reapers. I think though. so. I mean, I was def- I was getting into The Clash. Maybe I wasn't listening to that. I was, oh, you know what I was listening to? So growing up in Massachusetts, of course, the fucking cars were like huge. Oh. So I was, was listening. The, the cars were definitely all over the place. And I was definitely starting to get into that sound of like the crossover punk pop new wave, whatever the fuck it was called. <laughs> it definitely would have been something like that. I mean, I was writing songs like that too. And I'm sure at some point as a producer engineer, you have conceived the idea of owning your own record label and recording all the bands, right? Benny, I have a record label. <laughs> I do have a record label. <laughs> See, I called it so bad. <laughs> Did I even know that? You have a record label too? Yeah, I don't really promote it because it's kind of a vanity deal. It's what if so, what's your latest release? Uh my latest release is the reply, which is a ska band from the eighties that were all high school. Speaking of sixteen year olds, they, it's a really good record and it's good ska. And it's it happens to have uh, my wife's brother in it. <laughs> nice. But that's essentially... So I started the label like maybe 10 or 11 years ago because I was 
producing. There's this band called Amenity from San Diego, which was a hardcore band that was part of, that was pretty big in the scene back in the 90s, early 90s, mm-hmm. I guess. I mean, Zach Della Roca had something to do with the band. I don't think he was actually in the band, but it, it he came, it was part of that, he came out of the scene that they were spawned from. They were a big band in Southern California. Anyway, they did a reunion show like 10 or 12 years ago and they got together and recorded a single, which I mixed. And then I had had a friend at um, Orchard Distribution, which is a digital distribution label, who was like, dude, if you ever want, you know, I'll hook you up. I'll I'll, uh, I'll give you like a, he gave me a pretty sweet deal to like, he's like, if you ever want to have your own label. So I was like, huh. actually, I've got this band that doesn't know what to do with their digital release. So... I is started, this the reply that has a Discord release? Yeah, yeah, the vinyls on oh, Discord. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah. I see this. It's a two two LP collection. So you put this out digitally? Yes. Wow, yeah. look at you. <laughs> so you're the digital arm of Discord Records, and I didn't even know that. <laughs> it's the opposite. <laughs> they put out the vinyl. Um, yeah, the replies are fun. I gotta say, they're a fun band. I'm not just saying that because my brother in law was in the band. They uh, that's cool. I'm, they sound cool. They're very time. like jam. They're more like they sound more like the jam than like ska to me. You know, it's funny. All the bullshit you talk, where I'm like, what is Brad even talking <laughs> about? Sometimes, and then you just lay this out that you're a record label <laughs> owner. I've been sending you demos, guy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm screwed. I'm going to get fucking... I'm going to get sent to... It's literally everybody on there is like, I have a personal connection to, or it's like my own bands. Like I'm going to start... I think I'm going to start forwarding you (laughs) some requests. No. I literally have a one-page contract. Demo submissions. I basically have a one-page contract that says... I. Pretty much guarantee that I will not pay ever pay you anything. <laughs> well, that's a great contract. It's like, I mean, streaming <laughs> revenue is so tiny that, you know, I, it says in my contract, if you don't break $20 a year, I'm not going to pay you. Right. That's what it says. If you don't make more than 20 bucks a year in streaming, I'm, I'm not going to pay you because it's just, it's not worth writing a fucking check and doing the paperwork. Right, and I send, right. I send all the like, you know, I send the reports out to all the, to all the bands. So you did your reporting. Yeah, I do. I do. I do year end. And sometimes like if somebody's like kind of charting and it looks like they they must be on some playlists or something, I'll, I'll shoot out the, the charts to them. Well, I got to say the way you present yourself makes more sense now. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, because label owners are the type of guys, you know, who wear like <laughs> pastel little shorts, boating <laughs> shoes, sunglasses on their head. The whole deal. I've never yeah. worn my sunglasses on my head, <laughs> even when I was that fucking 16-year-old douchebag. <laughs> you know, if you were listening to BOC, I don't think you were too big of a douchebag. <laughs> At least probably meant you were smoking some pot or they something. They were definitely like my my middle school band. That nice. Have you ever seen that film, The Stoned Age? No. Where the guy gets real high at a Blue Oyster cult show and... It's trapped in a bubble and floats across the audience. No, that sounds fantastic. It's real fun. I will um, check it out. So let's clip this intro since we're uh, about to record. Our guests podcast. are waiting for us right now. <laughs> <laughs> Hit us with the socials. Let's get um, out of here. Yeah, so at Bullet Tooth Records HQ and at Good Fight Music, you can catch those guys. They also have personal accounts at Josh Grabel and at Carl Good Fight. 
Um, as always, you can catch up with us at goingofftrack.com. You can go to patreon.com slash goingofftrack and become a patron and get in on, you know, some special incentives like our Thursday night chat, which I think we're going to be a little late to tonight, maybe. Is that right? Yeah, I think we'll make it. Be our friends. <laughs> um, you can give us reviews on Apple Music, uh, wherever else you get your podcasts from. Um, rate the podcast if you like it. and Yeah, only if you like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I guess we'll see you next week. Yeah. Yeah.